welcome to this weekly episode of Mike Drop, gang. We're at episode 18, going to be talking about who's ahead in the Senate. A couple minutes while people gather, we'll go over some of our standard Mike Dropper housekeeping items. Uh, the first is uh, you're on Colin, a podcast app which is available on virtually anywhere that you get your favorite podcasts. As I think all of you know, um, I edit this after the call-in sequence ends and go ahead and post it um, almost immediately. And then it hits uh, the feeds of whatever it is that you get your podcast so that you can refer back to this because a lot of times we get some really fantastic questions um, that even I go back and listen to sometimes to try to get uh, some better information. Some of the dialogues here is really, really good. Um, I'm going to try to be a little bit briefer, go off of my soliloquies a little bit less today. The, the other standing rule here is we go as long as there's questions or as long as my voice holds out, whichever fades or disappears first, uh, determines when we stop the show. Um, if all of you guys wouldn't mind doing me that big we're building a fan base that allows us to have a greater discussion on the issues of import of the day. And I want to also uh, kind of apologize because we were going to go up earlier and do a, a deep dive with the Texas Hispanic Policy Foundation pollster. Uh, they ended up releasing that poll on Sunday as opposed to the previous Thursday not too big of a deal. I'm going to talk about it a little bit today, but you guys let me know with feedback in the chat. If you want me to bring him on, he's he's happy to do it. I just feel like we're kind of at the point of the cycle now where when we're getting two new polls a day, sometimes up to four a day, um, pulling one out specifically is probably not terribly helpful, right? We're just at that phase where you're starting to see all of the effects of the dramatic amounts of spend that are going on. I think a lot of you guys live in battleground states and you're seeing the ads, you're seeing stuff hit the airwaves. Um, you probably, hopefully, if you're an A student sitting in the front of the class, you're taking notes and you're looking at those commercials and saying, okay, what's the race, ethnicity, age, and gender of the target audience of this ad? Um, looking at it like a political consultant and trying to get a better sense of what that is saying compared to the polling that you're looking at on realclearpolitics.com. If you're doing that, you're going to pass the final. I've got no worries about your grades. Okay, you're going to do just great. If you're just doing those two basic elements, uh, you're going to pass the class, probably with flying colors. For the real, real deep dive, um, you know, we'll get into some of the, the real deep cross tabs and we can talk polling averages and really geek out a little bit more for, for my, my truly A students. Um, jump into the queue as soon as you can. That gives me the, the, um, the, um, the high sign that we're ready to kind of start the engagement part of the show. And with that, I'm going to start talking a little bit about some of the polls that have come out um, today, the first one, first of all, let me, let me start with what, with the generic ballot tightening up, um, again. And, and, and guys, I, I've been telling you this, um, maybe a little bit too subtly, maybe, maybe not. I mean, I, I level with you guys, right. And tell you this, 
These races are tight, and they're going to get tighter. This may be probably the tightest midterm I have seen, um, maybe ever. You know, I, we didn't have the tools that we have now going back to when I was first doing congressional campaigns. But the fundamentals of this race still um, benefit the Republicans. And I, I, as I was kind of going through and sifting through data over the weekend, I was actually listening to a politicology episode, Ron Stessel, my buddy, who brought on some of the folks from Decision Desk. It's a fantastic, fantastic podcast if you're interested in getting even more information and want to hear from some of the guys who work for Decision Desk uh, that actually make the calls. Like when you're watching TV, you think of who's the person that's got to say, okay, let's formally make the call for CNN or for the New York Times or for whatever news outlet. Most of those folks rely on Decision Desk, and he does a great interview. Ron does a great interview with Make That Call. And he goes through some of what they look for. And I found it really fascinating. Scott Tranner is one of them. I know Scott done the show with him on politicology. We'll probably do the show with him. It's one of those jobs. And so I'm getting word that I'm cutting in and out a little bit right now. If you guys can hear me, do me a favor and give me a thumbs up and let me know if if the reception is okay. I'm wondering if I just yeah okay I'm getting some thumbs up that's helpful I'm I'm, I'm wondering if I'm just getting um uh, I just need to get a newer headset I think that might be the problem or my extender off of my phone uh, but back to back to kind of the numbers here L- look uh, the 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 generic ballot showed a slight Democratic advantage for the first time last week um, it lasted um, um, pretty short lived again these are just the averages we're still quite a ways out from the election, but I think it's like half a point up, some small fraction uh, with a GOP advantage right now. Uh, I have never seen the, the, the average bounce back and forth this way, especially with such dramatic swings, right? Biden comes roaring back a couple of weeks ago. The Democrats move from a slight position to a strong position uh, over the course of the late summer. Republicans are now moving into a stronger position. We're beginning to see the immigration issue and law and order and crime issues surpass the abortion issue as a primary motivator for key constituencies. Uh, The fundamentals, again, benefit the party out of power. If you look at the historical trend line, um, and if you look at 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 um, at, at some of the, um, the the issues of concern, being primarily the economy and inflation, we're looking at this. If we're going to make the right decisions heading into the slight um, advantage for Democrats in the Senate, I'm going to talk about that a little bit because I think it's gotten even slighter. And I have said that I think that there's probably a 10 seat advantage for the Republicans. I think it's now probably sitting more at 15, possibly uh, 15, 17, maybe out, maybe 20. Um, still not, still not bad for Democrats considering the historical trend line. Not good, not great, but not, not bad. I'm going to talk about that a little bit. And then I'm going to talk specifically at some of the Senate races, which are starting to make a heck of a lot more sense. The first race I want to talk about, 
uh, is Florida. And I've been very dismissive of Florida because I, I believe that Florida is a much more Republican state than we have all, you know, than, than most of us political prognosticators give credit for. But if you look at Demings, she's, she's actually polling within the margin of error on, in most polls. She, she is right there. I think the average has her down 2.8, uh, you know, with a, with a, with an average MOE margin of error uh, at about three. I'd say 80% of the polling that is done in her race has her within the margin. She's only popping into the lead once or twice out of 10, 15 tests. Not great, but not bad. Definitely in the hunt. Much more so than I imagined. Okay, much honestly, much more so than I imagined. At this point, I would have thought that that uh, that Rubio would be kind of pulling away and would be sitting at a five or seven, um, a plus five or plus seven. He's sitting at about a two, two eight or a three. She, she's in the race, and 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 I, I um, it goes against my gut, but you got to listen. You got to look at the math. You got you got to listen to these things. Now, having said that, Florida always teases like this. Always teases like this. More often than not, it breaks outside of the margin of error. It did that in 2020. When I was at the Lincoln Project, I think we spent $16 million in, in just uh, the northeastern part of Florida, trying to move that into contention, um, knowing I would pull stakes at any given day if the, if the, if the race started to break away, and it did. Um, it's one of those things that just kind of flirts with you, flirts with you, flirts with you, acts like it's going to be there, and then in the end kind of turns and walks away from you. I, I hate Florida for that. It always screws up my money. It always screws up my spend. I can never count on it. And so I try not to look at it, but I'll be damned if it's not making me look at it again. Rubio is sitting at, again, a 2.8 is the rolling, real clear uh, politics average. Most of the margins of errors in those sample surveys are about a four, four point two, four and a half MOE. Um, um, so, so I wanted to kind of start there because then, then what I start doing the, the the race that really got me all hopped up today was Wisconsin. Now, Wisconsin does the same thing that Florida does. It leans more Republican than most polling suggests. Elliot Thomas from The Economist, as I mentioned earlier on, um, suggested that there's kind of this anti-Republican bias in some of these polls based off of the turnout models. Um, maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. But he does make a good point. I don't know how you would test for bias on an average, but it is a wake-up call to, to, to pollsters saying you can't say that Biden's going to win by seven and then he wins by less than one percentage point. You can't say that Florida is a two-point race and it ends up being six or seven for Trump going away. You, you can't say Arizona is a three, four-point Biden race and then it, you know uh, Biden ends up winning it by by you know ten, fifteen, twenty thousand votes. Uh, at a certain point, there, there's something a little bit wrong with with the modeling. You can be off a couple of points, and everyone's going to forgive you. That's that's understandable. But you can't be off five, six, seven points, and there's just too many polls that have been sitting in that position for too long. Wisconsin, look, Johnson, the, 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 the polling averages have, 
have Johnson, the more the most recent ones coming into September, Johnson moving into a stronger position. Not atypical. Again, when the fundamentals benefit the Republican in this race, he has won close races before. This will be his third time running for Senate. As much as I think he's probably a traitor on the payroll for Vladimir Putin, Ron Johnson is a known quantity, and he does get the numbers that he generally tends to get out of there. There's been a lot of hay made about whether or not Mandela Barnes is or isn't a strong candidate. If I thought he was stronger, and I think he probably can be um, or could have been, um, I would say that he would be he would probably be sitting in a stronger position than a negative one right now. I, I think I think Johnson wins this race. I think Johnson wins this race. I'm not too sure if I was advising either the senatorial or the Republican uh, you know, senatorial committee of, of either party um, that I would be investing terribly huge in this race if I had other places to go. Okay? Uh, we can come back and talk about Wisconsin a little bit more if we want to, if we need to. But at the moment, um, I'm just really not that bullish on Barnes hanging in there anymore. I reserve the, the right to change my opinion on this stuff um, because we're still, we've still got a long way to go. And guys, this was fear that I had. I said it last episode, I think. There's, there's a real fear, that, or maybe the name of the, the episode two, two, two weeks ago was Have the Democrats Peaked Too Early? That's a real thing. That's a real thing. If your momentum comes too early, it's not uncommon for a candidate to peak seven, ten days out and run out of enough momentum so that it just kind of flatlines and they don't get the turnout that they need. That has always been my concern on the abortion issue. A lot of people were saying, you know, this is this is just beginning. It's going to get even bigger and bigger and bigger. Couldn't say if that was right or if that was wrong. There's no way to say it's an unprecedented dynamic. It's the same people who are saying um, uh, that young people are going to show up. You see this a lot on Twitter. Gen Z is going to shock the world and show up. Well, young people have been saying that. Young, young activists have been saying that since the Vietnam War. And it's really only happened one or two times since then. It doesn't mean it won't happen. It just means it's not likely to happen. Okay? Caveat again. All of the elections that we have had have baked in a, a stronger female turnout and defection from the Republican Party, all of them have. So I'm not saying it's it's necessarily not there. What I am saying is the polling is showing a very riled up GOP base, and it's also showing in key states like Florida and Texas, we're going to talk about Texas next, that the immigration issue is a bigger turnout issue than abortion is. Yeah, Mike, you say, but you have been counseling us and telling us that it's not necessarily what the top turnout issue is. It's what the turnout issue is for the right demographic that you need. And Democrats need women and they need young voters. And that's the top issue. And that's exactly right. That's what I said. And I stand by that. That is exactly right. There's one problem. Immigration is surpassing abortion as a top issue for Republican women. And that's a constituency that the Democrats got to have if they're going to do well in the midterms. The reason they're in contention is because they're getting that consolidation and that excitement from women that are younger and that are motivated on that issue. And people have been adjusting the polls to reflect that. 
That may not be enough if there aren't the defections that we saw in Kansas and New York 19 and Nebraska earlier. Because remember, the Republicans started communicating and driving the immigration issue until really the last couple of weeks. And we're now starting it. uh, We're starting to see it work. It's working. It's blunting this continued growth of women defecting from the GOP to the Democrats. And it is having the effect of, at least for the moment, moving the Republicans back into a more competitive position. So say what you will about the horrid nature of the policy. In terms of the politics, this seems to have worked with plenty of time for both the Republican Party to recover and for the Democrats to launch another onslaught to start trying to move the numbers in its direction. But at this point, like I was saying, it's at best a 50-50. This is a tighter range than I have seen in probably the last 20 or 30 years. I think there are going to be some absolute surprises that no one is expecting. We may look at look at uh, Washington State. Could be a real real surprise there. Uh, Alaska, uh, things could get squirrely in Alaska. There, there's some signs of of movement out there that, in some ways, don't follow a traditional trajectory, and that's because it's so damn close. Okay, just when you think that our country couldn't get more more divided. We're finding out more and more unique ways. This could absolutely come down to 50-50 Senate, right? And it could come down to a less than 10-seat margin either way, okay? It, and we, I think we are also going to see a lot of split tickets. Let me talk about Texas. Then I'm going to hop over to Georgia, probably Arizona, Nevada. Texas, third poll in a row came out showing Beto at seven, in a negative seven position. Not good, guys. If you're a big Beto fan, and I know that there's a lot of them out there, I did a whole, a couple, I think, episodes on Beto and on Texas. I talk about Texas a lot because I know it's an area of interest. I cautioned and have been cautioning very early on. The fundamentals in Texas do not really make for much of a competitive state for Democrats. Now, that doesn't mean that it won't happen at some point. I very strongly, firmly believe that it will, but I think it's going to be you know, a few more cycles out. Um, could Beto win? Yes. Is it likely? No. It's just not. It's really not. Uh, three very credible polling out is the Hispanic vote. Because, as I've said again, if the Republican is breaking into the 40s with the Hispanic vote in Texas, there's really no way that a Democrat can make up for that. You just can't peel out enough white suburban women in the Austin Burbs and the Houston Burbs and the Dallas Fort Worth Burbs. They're just they're just not you just can't move the needle that much at this point in time. Especially when Abbott has basically thrown up this roadblock on the immigration question and is winning with it. So what's going on with the Hispanic vote? Well the Texas Hispanic Policy Foundation, my favorite pollster on this, had uh had Abbott getting thirty nine percent of the vote. He's knocking on the door of that forty. And when you're knocking on the door of that 40 by one point, that's not looking good for the Democrat. Uh, The poll that came out today, um, somebody help me with the name of it. It came out from, it wasn't, was it it Quinnipiac that did the race? Now, they they had the Hispanic vote 
49 Beto, 48 um, O'Rourke. I'm sorry, 49 O'Rourke, Beto O'Rourke, 48 Abbott. I don't believe that. I don't believe that that's that close. Abbott said from the beginning of this race that he was going to get 50% of the Hispanic vote. I don't, I, that's not going to happen. I don't see that happening. I do see him hitting the mid, uh, I'm sorry, not even mid, but low 40s range. I, I think that's possible. I could be wrong, okay? But if he does hit, if he does hit that low 40s range, the Democratic Party is going to finally have to acknowledge that it's got a problem. That they hey, Mike Madrid's been right. It's a bunch of voices on Twitter saying this is not a real thing. You know, that there's no Hispanic rightward shift. This, you know, is all just uh, bad polling and former Republican consultants who don't know what they're talking about. So usually a bunch of white guys in D.C., right, who are suddenly experts on the Latino vote. But set that aside for a moment. I, I, I think that it's quite possible that Abbott, in fact, it might be likely that Abbott hits 40, 41, possibly 42. OK, of the Hispanic vote. And if that happens, you're talking George W. levels. When I did that race in 2000, you start hitting the mid low 40s for a Republican with the Hispanic vote. And that's serious, serious numbers. That's serious, serious movement. And that makes that that's a cul-de-sac. There's just not enough votes for Beto O'Rourke to get there. So if that happens, and again, we're a ways out. A lot of things can happen. I'm going to talk about the Rio Grande Valley in just a second. But if that does happen, there's going to be some serious reckoning with the consulting class in D.C. saying, "Okay, we got to get out of the denial phase and start working and fixing and fighting for the Hispanic vote. The second is there's going to be a real reckoning with Beto's campaign. No two ways about it. No two ways about it. They're also, I'm sure, listening to mic drop like everybody else is and say, Madrid was the guy saying, what the hell are we doing in rural, red, deep MAGA counties in Texas? There's not enough votes there. You got to go fishing where the fish are, and there's not enough fish in those counties to start pulling that vote. Now, I know some of you have said, some of you have said, yeah, but he's hitting suburbs on the way too. I'm sorry. That's not the way that works. If I can hit five events, in an Austin suburb, or I can hit two events in an Austin suburb and three deep MAGA counties, I am not stopping for a bathroom break or to hit a Whataburger on the way uh, through, through deep MAGA country. You skip it. You maximize turnout. You focus on efficiencies. You go where the votes are. You fish where the fish are. And there's not enough fish for a Democrat in rural Texas. There's just not. There's not. Okay? We'll see if I'm right. Well, maybe I'm wrong. We'll see if I'm right. We'll see if I'm wrong. But right now, the polling says I'm right. Okay? Things can shift, but three polls came out. Texas Tribune, I think the Dallas, what is it? The, whatever Dallas's paper is. I don't know what the paper is in Dallas. And then the, the Texas Hispanic Policy Foundation, might have been the Q poll, too, the Quinnipiac poll. Anyway, three polls came out that says Beto's in a negative seven position. That's not good. He's, he's pretty far outside the margin of error. You can make the case that he was closing um, at the same rate against Cruz back in the last midterms, uh, maybe, I guess. Um, I'm just not seeing it. And one of the reasons is because he's not polling anywhere near as well, regardless of the sample size with Hispanic voters, as he was in 2018. Okay, maybe the polls are all completely wrong again. I doubt it. 
I don't think they're exact. The sample sizes are too small. But we're looking for movement. We're looking for direction. And there's undeniably, Beto O'Rourke is polling worse amongst Hispanics than he was in the 2018 race. By a fact, I think I think the the the, uh, uh, the, the Q the the uh, this last poll had him at fifty one percent to thirty four percent for Abbott, something like that. Uh, with a which which still leaves a good you know fifteen percent or whatever it is undecided. There's still a long way to go. But again, if Abbott he gets picks up just six percent, if he picks up a third, if he picks up a third of the remaining vote, I I just don't think Beto can get there. Which takes me to the Rio Grande Valley, which is where this rightward shift happened in 2020. There's a really fascinating dynamic right now where if you look at those, there's three seats that are in contention. The Myra Flores seat, Myra Flores is going to lose, but she has still outspent the Democrat by about seven, dollars $800,000, very significantly. Now, I, I think that's because the Democrats are going in there, they're polling, and they're seeing it and saying, uh, we're not spending any money here because we're going to beat her. We're going to beat her on just registration and turnout numbers. And they're right. They're right. Meyer Flores is going to lose unless unless something really weird you know, goes haywire. Okay? Meyer Flores, who just won the special election, she's going to lose. That's a Democrat seat. They'll get the normal high turnout that they're getting in term error, this high turnout era. But, but... I don't know that they're going to get the margin that they need to help a Bethel O'Rourke win statewide. And that's the problem. And I think that's what's wrong with the Democrats, their opportunities to pick up statewide races. That's a mistake. It's a mistake because the Democrats are not competitive in Texas unless they're getting 65% of the vote on the very, very low end, 60%. And if they're hitting 60%, it means that they're doing gangbusters with Republican women in the suburbs. They're not hitting either right now. And I know that because everybody's polling, again, is showing Beto pretty far behind. Seven points is not that close in a state that you need to be competitive, right? Mandela Barnes is close. He's down a couple. Val Demings is close. She's down a couple. Cortez Masto's close. She's down a couple. Beto's down seven. Okay? So at a certain point, at a certain point, you got to start looking at reality and saying, wait a second, maybe we need to pull stakes and fight with our money and fight with our resources and fight with our volunteer efforts on better ground because it's tightening up everywhere. Okay? Monica Dela Cruz seat down there. I think that she loses, too. I think that the Democrats do well in all of those Rio Grande Valley seats, but I don't think they close the gap. I think it's going to show continued rightward shifts, and it's going to keep hurting Democrats statewide in a lot of these contests. Let's move to Georgia. <clears throat> Warnock. Warnock's still sitting in a decent position, okay? But Walker is much closer than he should be. And I think we all know that because Walker should be at about 10% in the polls right now. But he's not. <clears throat> he's actually sitting really kind of neck and neck uh, with, with Warnock. Sorry, I should have gotten some water before I started here. may have to go grab some water. Somebody jump in the queue and, and ask a question because I'm going to need to get a little sip of water in a second. But Warnock is, is sitting 
with the RCP average at about a plus one, about actually point seven. But let's just say it's point one. And most of the survey work that's been coming in in September shows him Warnock in a plus in a, in a positive position, plus four, plus two, plus two, minus two, plus six. He's sitting in. A, in I, I would rather be Warnock than Walker right now. But I was pretty confident. I was pretty confident that we were going to have a um, you know, Warnock. I was basically saying, don't even spend on Warnock. He's going to be fine. The fundamentals in that race, Georgia has been moving to a better position for Democrats. You don't need to spend a whole lot. You, Abrams, probably you got to worry about. I'm not even sure if I would invest in Abrams because I've never liked the fundamentals of Abrams race. You guys know that. Did a whole episode on that. Can Stacey Abrams still win? Abrams isn't even close to the margin of error. Not in a meaningful way, anyway. So again, this could be a tough night for 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 the uh, the, the sweethearts of the Democratic Party. You lose Abrams, you lose Beto. Uh, we'll talk about what that scenario looks like for a presidential contest because I think things are starting to shake up a little bit differently there. Um, Warnock, I'm bringing Warnock back in. I'm taking a really close look at him, and I'm watching that race every day. That is not where I was at. That is not where I was at just a week ago. But Walker is, again, it's the fundamentals of, a, of a, what should be a strong GOP year. The fact that the Democrats are holding in there is is very significant. I can't tell you how rare it is. Okay? It does mean that the Democratic base is energized. It means that it's consolidated. It means that it's come back together and it's holding. It's sticking and I think that's good news. I do believe we're going to have very high turnout. I've shared this with you guys before. I think that we are an era, we are in an era, sustained era, like a 15, 20-year era that we've just began in 2018 of very high turnout elections because people realize just how much is at stake. Okay? It's because people are scared and they're anxious of the opposite side winning, and that is going to have very significant impacts in the turnout of these races. What's important about that is I don't believe that that necessarily is going to benefit Democrats just because. And that is something that we believed for 28 of my 30 years of doing campaigns. 2020 upended all of that. 2020 changed all of that. Okay, 2020 was the highest turnout election in the history of the country, and Republicans picked up seats down ticket. And what that really showed me was that the concept of negative partisanship had truly manifested itself entirely within the electorate. It wasn't just a fringe idea or theory that Mike Madrid used to you know, keep going, but wait a second, but wait a second, pay attention to this, because I was one of very few people saying it. Dr. Beitkoifer uh, has been talking about it too. She called the 2018 numbers almost exactly using the same theory. Beyond her and I, you don't hear very many people talking about this as the primary motivator, and it's why I think that when they're looking at generic ballot and presidential approval ratings, those fundamentals are still valid, but they're not valid for the reasons that people think they are, and it's why I think a lot of the pundits, the Cook Reports, the Sabatos, good guys, great people, Dear friends, I'd invite them over for Christmas dinner if they were interested in coming, 
But I think that's why they're getting it wrong, is they're using the same metrics that they've used for 30 years. And I'm not even sure they were right 30 years ago. They just had, they coincidentally overlapped with the same reasoning and the same outcomes. But the idea of negative partisanship is showing itself to be truer and truer and truer all the time. And 2020, I think, was the best example of that. So that's Georgia. I'm going to have Arizona and Nevada in reserve, but I'm going to jump to questions right now if you guys don't mind. And I know you don't mind because why would you mind, right? Amy, we're going to have Amy come up on stage. Whoop, Amy, I'm sorry. I invited you to speak. I'm going to have you be the next caller. Go ahead and what am I doing here? I'm making a mess out of my queue. Austin, you're up in the queue. Go ahead and ask a question. Amy, sit tight for just a second. Don't unmute yet. Austin, can you unmute? Hello, Mike. How are you? Yep, I can hear you. What you got? What are you thinking? I have a quick clarification question. Okay. And then I uh, I'm gonna jump into Ohio. So, the clarification question: Texas 15, um, which is the most Republican-leaning of the Rio Grande Valley seats, do you think uh, Democrats are going to hold it? Is that which is that uh, the new one that De La Cruz is running in, or is that the that's not the Myra Flores seat? Which one is that one? Uh, Myra Flores is Texas thirty four. Yeah, um, fifteen is De La Cruz. Yeah, I I don't think she wins. I I think the Democrats pick up that seat. Now, I, I, the, the, the Republicans are dramatically outspending the, the, the Republicans are dramatically outspending the Democrats there. So someone's going to look really stupid on Election Day. The Democrats are either going to look really dumb or they're going to look really smart. And conversely, the Republicans are either going to look really dumb or really smart. But what I will say is this: both sides are equally confident in the opposite direction. The Republican, Monica De La Cruz, they're outspending the Democrats by a million and a half, million eight. And the Democrats aren't spending. And that tells me either they think it's completely gone, and, and maybe it is. Maybe that's what they're saying, is, is it's hers, take it, which, which actually makes more sense in some ways. Because to, to be spending virtually nothing would be crazy even if you were up 20 points. So, uh, you know, if you ask my buddy Chuck Rocha that knows the Rio Grande Valley like the back of his hand, he thinks the Republicans are doing better than I think they are down there. He thinks the Republicans are in a much stronger position. I, 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 I don't know. I'm just looking at the numbers. I think the Democrats, I, I tend to think the Democrats are doing better just because they have such a significant um, uh, advantage in terms of long-term infrastructure. I, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I mean, Chuck, I mean... Chuck, Chuck could very well be right. I mean, he, he knows that area better than I do. I mean, what do you think? What's your sense? Yeah, it's going to be an important um, seat to watch on election night because I think if the Democrats hold it, then they have a fairly good chance of holding the House because mm-hmm. they shifted the seat to Trump plus three in redistricting. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but Hillary Clinton did very well in all three seats in um 2016 yeah and adrian caught from newsweek just i i just tweeted it out about an hour ago 
uh, take a look at that. He did a really good rundown on those seats, and it really tells you everything you need to know. Uh, maybe a little bit. It's, it's kind of in the weeds. I think you'll really like it, Austin, because it does go back and forth between what the RNC is doing, what they're saying. It's a, lot, a little bit more tit for tat than than you get normally in a political race. But I think what Adrian was trying to do in that article was trying to give it a real sense of the way both sides are approaching this. What I will say is one way or the other, one one side is going to look really, really bad because somebody's not reading it right. Someone's not reading it right. And who, the, uh, uh, what I will say is this. Keep your eye on that race because whoever wins that race, Dems or Republicans, is probably also going to win California 22, the Valadeo seat in California, currently represented by a Republican, because it's virtually the same seat. It's virtually the same demographics. And so I think you're right. If the Democrats can hold on to that seat, there's a good chance they're picking up California 22. If the Republicans pick up that Texas seat, there's a good chance that they're holding on, their incumbent holds on in 22. And we're just going to have to see. But it's going to be a good indicator of probably maybe the New Mexico seat, maybe Colorado 8, but certainly California 22. Yeah, I kind of think if the Texas 15 seat goes Democratic, then there's a fairly good chance that the New Mexico 2 seat and the Colorado 8 seat potentially go Democratic along with a couple of the California seats. I think that's exactly right. That's that's one of the indicators that you're looking for. And you know, I'll probably on election night if I'm not doing if I'm not doing media, I'll I'll, I'll jump on. You guys let me know as we get closer. If we want to do one of these, then we can kind of do, you know, I can just kind of do some some, you know, east coast to west coast analysis of those house seats as they're falling and and show what other seats are likely to go in which direction based off of that. Might be a little bit too too early uh, in the cycle, you know, with 45 days or whatever we got left to make that kind of a commitment, but that might be kind of fun. Maybe we do something like that. Yeah, I think that'd be a lot of fun as well. You got an Ohio question. Yes. Now, the Ohio seat, it's, it appears to me in the polling data, CNN mm-hmm. College just released a poll where the sample, um, where the recall 2020 vote was Trump 49, Biden 41, and Tim Ryan's in a plus three position. Uh-huh. And I think maybe this is, might be why Tim Ryan's doing really well. And I it goes, I guess, back to Virginia in 2021, mm-hmm. the mistakes that the Democrats made. Um, dealing with Glenn Youngkin. So McAuliffe and the Democrats uh, pretty much allowed Youngkin to dominate the airwaves and present himself as a moderate suburban Republican mm-hmm. <laughs> wearing his letter vest. And right. he, he, he got away with that for you know 12 weeks or however long it was until right around September until the Democrats began trying to tie him to Trump. But by that, I think voters made up their minds that Youngkin was not a scary guy. And... Um, it was okay to, to vote for him. Um, I think something very similar might have happened in Ohio where Tim Brown was allowed to get on the airwaves early to find himself as a pragmatic moderate. And um, you would think, based on the fundamentals, it would reverse back to Vance, but I haven't seen that. What's your take on the Ohio race? Well, first, I, I, I love the way you've set that up because I think you're exactly right. And let, let me, let me uh, with the Virginia race, let me, let, me, let me flesh this out a little bit more. I think you really did a good job here. It, not just the tactics you mentioned, right, with them going up and, 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 and going up early and setting the predicate 
for Yunkin to be kind of a more moderate, not a Trump guy, right? It's you know he he would never say he voted for Trump. They 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 start to establish McAuliffe as kind of the extremist on critical race theory. In that race, in my estimation, you had a uniquely strong candidate in Yunkin, and you had a a, a poor candidate in McAuliffe with baggage. Here, and, 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 and the, the good candidate in that race was the Republican. The bad candidate was the Democrat. Here you have the reverse. You have a uniquely strong candidate in the Democrat, Tim Ryan, and you've got a uniquely poor candidate who's really viewed as the extremist in, in J.D. Vance. And, and so setting that frame is really important, like you just said. One of the fascinating things about this Ohio race to me has not been the horse race per se. It's been the low awareness and the low uh, formation of opinion on these two candidates in Ohio. Up until like two weeks ago, there were still like 34% of Ohioans didn't have a strong sense of either one of these candidates. It's like, how in the hell is that possible? It's one of the you know biggest, highest profile race with some of the most colorful candidates in the country. But it's a good reminder that not everybody... You know, is is listening to Mike Drop or reading Real Clear Politics or watching cable news, right? Most Americans aren't. Most Ohioans aren't. Or at least a lot of Ohioans aren't. Enough Ohioans aren't. And so you're right. You've got to set that frame. I think Ryan did a good job, like you said. They 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 did what McAuliffe did. Is they got out there. They got in there early. Ryan has taken positions where he's called out his opposition directly to Biden because remember Biden's underwater compared to Trump in Ohio. This is a Trump state. By a decent margin, he's established that independence, and he's competitive. He's in there. The RCP average has advanced at a 1.2. He should be stronger. This is Ohio. He should be sitting at a plus 5. He's not, and he hasn't been able to close the deal, even with his own Republican constituencies. My strong sense is that will probably change because we are, again, driven by negative partisanship. And even people that don't like Vance, Republicans that don't like Vance, and there are many of them, they will come home. They will hold their nose. Why? Because they believe any Republican, any Republican is better than any Democrat on any given day. And so now as the race comes into focus, as those 34% of people that haven't uh, developed an idea or an opinion on these candidates start getting the impact of the spend that is coming down right now, you're going to see Vance start tightening up the race more than he has been. This dude has not been in a really strong position for a Republican in Ohio. He just hasn't. He just can't close the deal. He can't turn the corner. Because, again, of the fundamentals of the race, I think he probably does. My money is still on Vance to win this race. But again, Tim Ryan is absolutely 100% in this thing. So again, if, if anybody out there is contributing to a, uh, to a Mandela Barnes, for example, I, I, if, if, I've got to, if I've got to choose which Democrat is going to win at this point in the race, Mandela Barnes or Tim Ryan, I'm kind of thinking Ryan. Which I know, which doesn't make any sense. It's just I think the strength of the candidate has got to be factored in here. Ryan's a damn good Democrat for Ohio. He's done all the right things, and Vance is a particularly weak candidate. Now you could make the same case about Ross Johnson in Wisconsin, weak candidate, but damn, the guy's a two-term incumbent, 
And I'm not too sure Barnes is that strong. I'm not too sure Barnes is the right candidate to put up to take on Johnson. I think if you had a stronger candidate, you'd probably end up with a good shot of picking up both of these seats. Bottom line is, I still think it's slight advantage Vance because of the fundamentals, but Tim Ryan is absolutely in this race, absolutely you know, in this race in a way that I never would have imagined uh, even just a few weeks ago. Thanks for the questions, Austin. You're welcome. Uh, we're going to go now to Andrew. Andrew, you're up. Go ahead and unmute and ask away. Hey, you Mike. Can you hear me okay? Uh, I can hear you. How you doing? Hey, buddy. Um, I have some really cynical questions. Today. Oh, no. That's okay. That's all right. Um, there's a very large storm about to sting traffic in Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about, and this is this is me being nasty and cynical, that um, something really bad happens down there and your president goes down and does the things that he's really good at, which is empathy. Mm-hmm. Does that move the needle, do you think? That's question one. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, God, that's such a great question. I and, and I'm, I, Look, this is one of the funny things about Florida because this is not uncommon for, for those of you old school folks like me back in the 1992 cycle some of you may remember hurricane andrew which decimated florida and george herbert walker bush kind of went down there and 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 did the rolled up sleeve and and you know holding a baby walking through the through the rubble um in that cycle um didn't quite work out for him the way that i think a lot of people were hoping the empathy vote would but um the the difference between then and now, Andrew, the difference between then and now is if you watch Fox News, it doesn't matter how empathetic Joe Biden is. They're going to they're going to destroy him. And, and people are so predisposed to think the worst of him that I'm not too sure who that helps or who that speaks to beyond his already existing traditional base. So uh, could it happen? Yeah, it could. Is it likely? Probably not because the way the media works now, I suppose you could get a little bit of a swing with independent voters yeah. or, or low information voters. Yep. Uh, and you absolutely might, but it's it's not anything that I think any of us can factor into a model. Um, I, I, I think it's very possible. I think it's a great question because it's it's a real question. It's, it's, it's something we're going to have to deal with in the next, you know, three, four or five days when the, when the storm passes and, and there's just a massive amount of damage. But I, I don't know if that holds. I just, I, I don't know. I don't know if, if they see DeSantis as a more, you know, comforting figure than a Biden. What if, what if Biden comes down to Florida and DeSantis, you know, snubs him the way Jan Brewer did to Obama? You know, I mean, they, they're not above that. These guys are going to do that kind of shit now. And I, I, mean, I yeah. will people, will, will Republicans like that? Yeah, probably. Didn't, I don't um, know. Didn't Christie do it with Obama? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, there you go. I mean, Republicans and, and, and things are worse now than they were with with Brewer and Christie. Right. I mean, or Christie, Christie welcomed Obama. Right. And then he got he got beat up by the Republicans for for, for doing that. That's what happened. And I've, I've got a really, really cynical question next. So, yeah, um, that's OK. Don't, please. Don't. No, that's why we're here. Um, um, so I've been looking at the coronavirus death count in America. And yeah. um, 
that you've lost over 780,000 people mm-hmm. who are 65 and over. Yeah. You know, they trend are plus five, plus six at a minimum. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've lost over a congressional district worth of people. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I'm looking at the new the North Carolina race where Beasley lost her her uh, seat race for the judgeship by 400 votes. Mm-hmm. Does that, you know, they've lost 26, 29,000 people from COVID. Like, where are these, where are these older voters being replaced? Like they're just, they're just falling away. And I don't think the polling really captures that because the demographic change is accelerating now in America because of the coronavirus. And I don't see anyone talking about that or forecasting that. Yeah. It, it, it's okay to ask that question. In fact, when I was on the Lincoln Project, we, we were doing something called buying into this spike, which was incredibly cynical, um, but it would have been malpractice if I didn't do it. Let me explain what we were doing. What, what we would do is we would follow data, actually it was foreign data, because we didn't trust Trump's numbers of what the coronavirus actually was. But there was an outfit out of, uh, I think, Australia that we, we were getting information from on counties that we're seeing an increase in the infection rate of the coronavirus. And we knew that it took two weeks for the virus to incubate. So we knew that there was an outbreak coming two weeks in advance. And what we would do is we would change our messaging specifically on the coronavirus. And we would chase that spike. We would buy into the spike, which is why we called it that strategy. We'd start throwing advertising dollars into these communities. And even more cynically, hate to admit this, but we did it, and it actually was very, very effective. We knew that after two weeks that the death rates were going to go up. So we would change our ads to a, a more somber ad demonstrating that this was happening because hospitals were overflowing. There, there wasn't enough facilities to preserve bodies. And we would message right into that. And that was when we started to see... DeSantis's numbers drop considerably. I don't know if people remember that. Abbott's numbers would drop considerably, and Doug Ducey's and Arizona's numbers would drop considerably. So I, I don't, you know, cynicism is just part of the political business. And if if you're not okay with that, you might want to just choose another business. Now, having said that, a million a million is a big number, but but you put it really well. You said that's basically you know like a congressional district. It's actually a couple congressional districts, isn't it? No, it's one. It's one. But 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 spread across the whole country, it's it's not that significant. Okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but so I'm I'm talking about the close races, right? Where I think you're Yeah, in a, yeah, yeah. You're yeah. In a, one, no. one to two point range. Yeah. So is it a factor? Of course it's a factor. Every vote's a factor. Is it something that will overcome the turnout model? Probably not. So the the states where there's gonna be the most impacts are going to be Florida older population, um, Arizona, older population, primarily Sunbelt states. Um, but but I, I, I don't believe that a million spread over the 120 million that are going to vote this election cycle is going to be that impactful because you have other factors that are coming into play. The shift in voting groups is far more significant than a million deaths and and again these million deaths are not in a vacuum by the way you're right that republicans are older 
Republicans are dying off faster generally, and they're being replaced by 18-year-olds coming on every 20 seconds, literally, in this country. Um, so the Democrats are replacing Republicans faster, but Republicans vote at a much greater propensity than Democrats. Bottom line is, a million is a big number, but when it's spread across 120 million in the country, in all you know, in the 538 number, it's 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 not it's not um, significant enough to have an impact in any one given jurisdiction or state. All right. Oh, and uh, yeah, and 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 yeah, and, and as from last time, I think you're right about Beto. So thanks for your uh, yeah. I, w- I went and I went and did some um, further research, and um, I, yeah, without a without a large union base, I don't see how he has enough um, Democratic voters. Enough there, there. Yeah, thanks for thanks for checking on me because sometimes this old brain's getting a little rusty. So yeah. I, appreci- <laughs> I appreciate the the, the check in my homework. And I, by the way, I've got no issue with that. That helps me. I don't, I'm not one of those people that gets upset by that. If, if, if I'm wrong, just say, Mike, you're wrong or you misspoke because that happens a lot too. I talk really fast, and sometimes I'll mix up a poll or a polling number or I'll remember something from a week ago that doesn't match the, this poll or that poll. So I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it, and I'm, I'm glad you're that interested. Thanks, Mark. Thanks Good for joining, Andrew. Great hearing from you again. appreciate you joining Thanks. us from across the, across the ocean there. Uh, Kevin, you are up next in the queue. Thank you for being so patient. Go ahead and unmute and ask away, Kevin. Hi. Hey. Um, yeah, so earlier you talked about uh, the consultants that were advising Democrats on the Latino vote. Yeah. I was just I was just wondering, you know, who who are these people and are they locked into their views that this is some polling error or something? Or is there any way that they can be swayed to change strategy at this point? Not at this point. Uh, that's a really good question, and I, I want to make this clear. We're seeing it right now with with consultants in the Democratic Party, um, but the, the Republicans do it too. Okay, and, and the reason why really goes to to the bottom line of why you know Trump was able to rise when everybody knew the dude was a bad guy. Like everybody in the Republican establishment knew this guy was no good. But because so many people's businesses and title and, 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 and history is wrapped up in the party infrastructure and the party hierarchy on both parties, on both sides, your value in a political party is, is on reinforcing your existing machinery, your existing power structure, your existing network far more than it is telling the truth. Let me say that again so everybody can hear that. And if it knocks you over a little bit, good, it should. Because it's, it's endemic in both parties. There is a much higher premium, much, much, much higher premium on following the orthodoxy of your beliefs than following the truth on both sides. You're seeing it with the Hispanic vote right now in the Democratic Party. Here's why it's so contentious. If the Democrats need to become a blue-collar party again, a lot of the policies that they've advocated for, especially on the environmental front, it has to be acknowledged that those policies, however good they are for the planet, are hurting them politically. 
And that is something that people have built their entire careers, their entire firms, their entire businesses that have gotten elected on. And carrying that mantra is their significance in the party hierarchy. If they have to start acknowledging that that belief is a danger or a threat to the majority of the party, they will do everything they can to deny it. That's what happened. That's why Trump was able to rise. It's not that everybody f- suddenly thought that Trump was a good guy. It's that no one except for you know eight people with the Lincoln Project and the political consulting class were willing to stand up and say, um, the emperor has no clothes. And by doing that, we risked the very real likelihood that we were going to lose our businesses. Lose our businesses. And no one's willing to really... People say they're willing to do that, but no, but very, very few people are really actually willing to do that. Okay? Very few. Like shockingly few. Like disturbingly few. And you're witnessing the same thing in the Democratic Party, which is why I keep saying it so loud because, one, I know it's to be true. It's just math. (laughs) It's math, right? The Democrats are supposed to be the party of math. So I say it because, you know what? I don't have any weight in the party. I get no financial, political, or reputational benefit by towing the, the line for the Democratic Party. Or the Republican Party. That's what's so beautiful in many ways of what I was doing with the Lincoln Project is I was free to just tell the truth. And if I'm going to tell the truth to the Republican Party and not be afraid, you sure as hell better believe I'm going to tell the Democrats the truth and not be afraid. And so there is not a single political consultant publicly who is trying to deny this. And they're out there on Twitter. I'm not going to mention any names, but you can find them if you want who are simply saying this is not happening and they're putting out bad math and really poor analysis to explain why this is quote-unquote not happening. It's the same thing as climate denial. Of course it's happening. It's math. Look at the outcomes. Look at where the Democrats are spending the money. And the, the denial comes from the fact that you cannot acknowledge truth in politics on either side. The, the, both parties are not in the truth business. It doesn't pay off for you personally in the hierarchy. So it's not that they're seeing different math or seeing different polls or coming to different understandings. There might be some of that, but the overwhelming majority of what it is is that these people don't want to lose their hierarchy, their status, their contracts, their business, their network in the party. Many of them have spent many decades, like I did in the Republican Party, building that up. And if it comes between losing a shit ton of money every year or telling the truth, these guys are going to lie all day long and pretend like it's not happening and ignore it and try and, quote-unquote, spin their way out of it or spin the math out of it because it's a literally a threat to their positions in the party. I hope that was a good answer, Kevin, but that, that's what's going on. They're, they're not in the business. There's, there's very few people that are in the business of actually speaking truth to power, especially as you get higher and higher up on the rungs in politics. There's literally no, no interest to you personally 
in being a truth teller. Look what it got me in the Republican Party. Donald Trump's a bad guy. He's going to be bad for America. He's going to be bad for, 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 for the party. What it gets you is it gets you ostracized. It gets you kicked out. It gets your reputation destroyed. It gets your business essentially taken from you. Now, I mean, obviously, I don't regret it, but it, it, it could something happen on the Democratic Party side? Of course it could. Of course it could. Of course it could. Because the parties are functionally, they're, they're machinery to advance agendas. They're not in the truth-telling business. There's nothing inherently, I'm probably going to lose a bunch of fans right now, but that's okay. I'm, I'm not going to pull my punches. There's nothing inherently more truthful about the Democratic Party. Inherently. Are they telling the truth more than the Republican Party at this moment in time? Of course they are. Yes, they are. That's why I'm voting with them. That's why I'm advocating for them. But they are parties. That's all it is. There's nothing virtuous about it. It exists to advance an agenda. In this case, it's to advance an agenda of preserving and protecting the country, which is why it's so easy to be involved with them. But there's nothing, there's nothing inherently virtuous about either of these things. And we, we've got to be really careful about blind loyalty to these things because they can be very dangerous. Both of them can. Any one of them can. And that's the lesson that we're learning right now, and it's why it's healthy to criticize your own party. A political party that doesn't face criticism is not a political party. It's a cult. And I see that a lot on the left, too. It's like, how dare you? And that's when people get really pissed off at me if I say something critical about the Democratic Party. It's like, I mean, come on. I'm going to be critical of the Republican Party. Of course I'm going to be critical. Doesn't mean I'm not voting with them. Doesn't mean I'm not supporting Joe Biden. Of course I am. The times call for that. But I'm going on a little bit too long here. I'm beating a dead horse here, Kevin, but it's a really good question. And I think it's really, really instructive to understand. Look at the math. Look at the Hispanic vote trend line from Obama to Hillary to Biden. Look at the trend line with Youngworth and McAuliffe and in New Jersey in the off-cycle elections. Look at Myra Flores winning a race down there. Look at all of the polling, okay? Of course it's happening. It's math. It's math. And there are people that are going to deny it, not because they're seeing things differently, but it's because it's a threat to who they are and where their, their position is and where their leverage is in the party. I hope that was helpful. Yeah, super helpful. Thank you. You bet, Kevin. Thank you for the question, and thanks so much for your patience. Katie, we're going to have you come on up. You are next in the queue. Go ahead and unmute, and let's have that question. All right. So I have three quick ones, really quick ones. Okay. Um, Mom, we're going we're gonna to hold you to that. <laughs> <laughs> so the first one was um, I read that um, they the – Republicans pulled a bunch of funding out of Ohio 9, the House race, um, uh-huh. for Marcy Kaptur. And I was wondering if you had any insight as to whether that was because they have it in the bag or if it's because they're not going to win it. Um, you're going to have to give me a little bit more meat on the bones of Ohio 9. The Democrats have pulled their spend? No, the Republicans pulled their spend. Okay, the Republicans pulled their spend. Let me take a quick... If anybody knows anything about Ohio 9, let me know. Um, Let me take a look at it right now. Uh, 
This is uh, Captor Majewski. Majewski. Oh, this is with the with the the the, the crazy Republican dude who's blowing it up right now. Yeah. I think. Look, I, I uh, let me tell you what's happening here. The Republicans have pulled stakes because they can't they can't support a candidate like that anymore, and so basically he's floating on his own. That doesn't necessarily mean he'll lose. By the way, mm-hmm. hopefully he will. And I think it's probably a good sign of, of Ebbing's support. I think he probably will lose because it's so damning. And if just 3 4% of Republicans either don't show up or lay off, it puts uh, the Democrat in a very good position. But, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, um, I, I, uh, I, and unfortunately, I do this. I usually go by names more than by numbers. So, so Majewski, if you would have said that, is that how you say it, Majewski? Um, he's, I think he's in deep trouble. I think McCarthy had to pull out. I think that they're going to move their money elsewhere. And I think they probably saw some polling showing that he was tanking too. The key, the key to watch is how he behaves going forward. If he goes quiet, that's the best thing he can do. And then what they'll do is in two or three weeks, they'll come in. They'll do what we call a quick and dirty poll, which is just do test cheaply the horse race to see if he's still in it. And if he is, what they'll do is they'll roll the dice late and and bring money back in to try to steal the race from the Democrats. That's usually how you handle a seat like that. But then pulling that money up is an extremely significant event. It means he's on his own. He may win it. If he can raise the money, he'll still be able to raise money online, but he's getting no institutional help at this point. They've pulled the stakes on him. They plug on. They make him back if he does uh, hold in contention. If I'm the Democrat right now, you unload the cannon and push him out of contention and just rip the bark off of him. Beat the living crap out of this guy on these issues. Drive his negatives up knock down that Republican enthusiasm, knock down that Republican base level of support. If you can move it three, four, five points, he's he's dead man walking. He just won't recover right, so from the it. second question is on Minnesota's race in District 02 for the Congress uh, or House mm-hmm. um, between Angie Craig and Tyler Kistner. Um, I personally, I, I'm volunteering in that district. So Okay. Um, is that where you live? Yes. Yes. I live in Minnesota 02. So I should have known by the accent. <laughs> <laughs> Can I hear that Minnesota in there? Um, so what are you asking kind of what it looks like right now? Yeah. Just wondering if you had any insights about how it's going. Cause obviously when you're volunteering, yeah. everything's all peaches and cream. <laughs> yeah. Winning, obviously. So. The, the only public poll out there Kate, was in July, right? You've probably seen this one. Uh, it shows Craig up by one. Um, here, here's this race is going to be extremely volatile based off of the fundamentals that I have been talking about. Uh, my guess is, and again, th- this poll that came out um, is a 400 sample, which is very, very light margin of error of five points. Craig is in a plus one position, which means it's a coin toss. It's absolutely anybody's race. It's going to be that way up until election night biden was at 53 biden wins the district 53.7 to trump's 46 so biden beats him pretty good if i had to bet just on this base level of information that i've got right now i think the democrat probably wins this race i think you're probably going to see strong female turnout i don't know what the rate of college is it a blue collar district or is it a is there a good 
professional class there? It's a little bit blue collar. It's got a little bit of the kind of far reaching suburbs of the Twin Cities. It's also got um, Rochester, which is the Mayo Clinic, and then um, a couple of college towns down in the south of Minnesota, but it's both kind of urban and rural. Um, There's a Uh lot of farmland um, type stuff. Interesting mix. Yeah. So, okay, so where, where does it seem like – I'm sure you probably have enough volunteers to be putting people everywhere, right? So you guys are, like, leaving no stone unturned? Well, I, I would say that volunteer involvement has been a little bit light. Um, oh, and I, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm just, like, low-level volunteer, like, just yeah. door knocking and phone banking and stuff. So I don't, I don't know, like, the entire logistics of the race, but um, – so, so where are you walking? You walking by the Twin Cities? You walking in the Burbs? Are, walking more, are there chain link fences where you're walking? Yes. Um, okay. So yeah, I'm 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 in more of kind of the the suburban exurban areas. Um, okay. Well, that's where the race is going to be won or lost, which is why they're putting you there, which is good. Yes. Right. That's where that's where your time is best spent. Now, let me ask you another question: Are you getting a lot of no? I'm not voting for your candidate. Um, I think. It's about even, um, oh. and it's interesting because um, I think it's hard for me. I finally like looked at the statistics of the responses I got mm-hmm. um, because I think the no's stick out more than the yeses just because. Yeah, um, it feels yeah, different. Yeah, it, it yeah. feels bad, mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. you remember it more. Um, but the last, the last time I knocked, it was actually heavily in favor of her um yeah but it was in you know kind of a a a suburban suburban metro twin city area district or yeah or whatever so yeah and what what what, do you know what the source of the opposition was did they say why or just no i'm voting for the republican most of them was just yeah i'm voting for the republican yeah okay so this is and i hope i'm not upsetting your your supervisor or whoever overseeing your efforts but let me say this let me give you a little secret of what we do as campaign managers. This is something you're only going to hear on Mic Drop. What we're looking for more often than not is we're looking for the negative response. We're counting the negatives. And the reason why is because most people are going to be kind and they're going to be nice. You'll hear the definite enthusiastic, oh, yeah, I'm with you 100%. Keep going. Write me down as a positive. I'm with you. Those are great. A lot of them are just like, oh, okay, thanks for the information. Sure, I'll take it in, blah, 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 because they want to move along your way and they want to be nice. They want to be polite. The indicator of what's really going on is how strong and how often the negatives pop up. And if you're getting a lot of them, it tells you you're in a contentious race, which you knew. You knew that, right? Yeah. So so the fact that you're in a contentious race isn't terribly surprising, but but be, be mindful of that. And don't, don't, don't. You can't take it personally. I know it's hard, especially when you're volunteering, because door knocking is not fun work. It's tough work, right? You're putting yourself out there. You never know what you're going to get. Is that dog going to bite my heel like it's hot? I need some water. I got to go to the bathroom. I don't know where the truck is to take me to the bathroom. Like there's all these things that go into this, right? But you're in, a, you're in an area with a lot of suburbs. You're in a plus Biden territory by a good number, by the way. That's not terribly close. That's a stronger Biden lean than I would ordinarily expect. You're probably going to have a lot of suburban voters that are going to have a higher propensity than some of the working class areas. So my guess is, my gut is, and again, this is all all gut and very little data. 
I, I would probably say you guys are in a stronger position by a plus two, plus three position, just based off of the fundamentals of, of that kind of a district with that kind of a race. Well, that is promising to hear. Yeah. The last one's kind of lighthearted. Can, okay. can you tell us the backstory of the squirrel that you referenced <laughs> a lot? Yeah. I, I don't know if, if you follow me on Twitter. Um, basically, what happened was I was um, – alone in the pandemic like all of us were and i live um upstairs in an old victorian and i heard some um scratching up above my head while i was doing some work on the lincoln project i was you know putting doing data work and a family of squirrels had moved up into the eave up above my head and again this is i i i i, I by myself so um, these squirrels would kind of come at a regular interval and they would kind of come visit me pretty regularly and they became really the only interaction that I had because I lived downtown and downtown was completely desolate and I wasn't talking to people like nobody was. And what I did was, again, if you've, if you've seen my, my Twitter um, page, the pinned tweet is a picture that I took of this squirrel on the eve looking down at me. And that, that picture went viral. It actually went kind of worldwide and I was getting reporters calling from all over the world. And I, I started to do this videotape series of the squirrels and my interactions with them and incorporated music and kind of these funny timelines. And it just became kind of this sensation where people were following me uh, in these travails that I was having with these, these squirrels every day. And they were following the, the squirrel saga more than they were following the political data that I was putting out there. Um, so that's the story of the squirrels. That's uh, you've got to go back a ways with Mike Madrid. If, if you know you're an OG mic dropper, if you've if you've been following Mike Madrid and know the original story of the squirrels, that's the original story. That's how it happened. You can still see some of those videos posted up there on the thread from the pinned tweet. Um, I should probably start repinning them up again because it's a pretty funny story. Um, the squirrels kind of cooperated a little bit and they they were doing some really funny stuff and had a good time with it. So. Um, that's, that's the story. Thank <laughs> sure, Katie. Thanks for asking that question. I haven't had a squirrel question in a while, so it's good to know that our followers are growing and I'm glad to get you caught up because I do post stuff on squirrels. I think most of you guys know that. Um, but love, love answering the questions, um, on the personal side too, if I can. Melissa, regular caller, welcome to the show. What you got on your mind? Well, the only people I'm listening to is you and John Ralston. Because okay. I always like to hear the bad news. <laughs> <laughs> John Ralston, what, what, Ralston's, Ralston's like the Nevada whisperer, right? That's right. He's the Nevada whisperer. And he's like, look what they're putting on, on YouTube. Look at yeah. the new ad from the right wingers pretending to be normal. It's like, oh, my God. So I got here late and I'm making my martini. So I just want to have a quick, that's all I'm asking, uh -huh. What's the good and the bad and the ugly that you probably discussed earlier, earlier in the in this po uh, podcast? Like, how? What are your expectations or ideas or you know, Sabatini's crystal ball? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, what is it? Where are you at? Because yeah, you have a header, but I don't have the. You know what I mean? I missed the the front. Yeah, let's go over the the, the good here. If, if for Democrats, the good news. I would say is far, far more competitive than they should be in most of these seats right now. You're not seeing any blowouts um, that I can think of, 
right? Like the Mandela Barnes candidates who I think are weak, Val Demings, still very much in all of these races. And, and, and if you're looking at the House races too, the margin of which the Republicans are leading in, the likelihood of their pickup is at a historical low for what we for for any environment that we've ever simulated anything close to this. So the 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 bottom line is I think at least at this moment the worst case scenario remains the Democrats hold the Senate by one seat. They they uh, lose the House by a ten vote or less margin. I think it might be bigger than that, but let's say this is best case. Mm-hmm. And and that's not that's not bad. That's not bad. Look, you can't win everything all the time, even as as troubled as these times are. I don't think that that's bad. In fact, that's historically like overwhelmingly good. It doesn't feel that way, but that's not a bad position to be in. And as I said, if that does pan out, that puts the Democrats in a very good position to win. Now, let me say this. Have you had a sip of your martini yet? Yes. Um, I'm increasingly convinced Biden's not going to run for reelection, which is a really, which is a really weird thing for somebody like me to say. I'm also increasingly of the, of the mindset that, that, that Trump either doesn't run or if he announces it's a flimsy, lame, weird thing that becomes tied up with something else he's trying to pull off. But I, I increasingly, increasingly, you know, think um, that Gavin Newsom gets into this race, um, and I think that that puts the Democrats in a really strong position to win. I think I think Gavin Newsom is, is probably the, the best politician of of his generation. I don't know if he and Obama are the same generation, but but Gavin Newsom's a Gen Xer, and I never thought there would be a Gen X president. I think Gavin. Gavin can can would beat DeSantis handily. I think it would be very tough for him to beat Tucker Carlson, but I don't know if Tucker gets into the race or not. Yeah. Well, the so, thing about Gavin is he was he had a, an interview last night on MSNBC, and people who are in my, where I am staying, some of them are Republicans, uh-huh. and they said I like that guy. He's yeah. quick on the uptake. He's like he he doesn't stop. There's no. He's he's thinking while he's hearing the the question. Well, and he's 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 throwing punches while he's doing it. Yeah. And, and let me let me let me say this. I think I think Gavin Newsom is probably the most talented politician of his generation. I don't know if, if Obama's an exer or not. I mean, that would be a tough a tough one to mm-hmm. compete with. But having said that, like I don't think he's a great governor. And I, I ran I, I ran Antonio Villaraigosa's race against him because I don't I don't like the wing yeah I don't like the wing of the party that Gavin Newsom comes from I don't I don't like the all it is is cultural issues there's no talk about people of color there's no talk about the poor there's no talk about you know California's got a lot of problems and we don't need to get into California right now you know a, a lot of a lot of Gavin's most senior advisors are some of my very closest friends. And I share these concerns. I share these concerns with them, um, but 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 as a professional who looks at, at what's likely to happen, or at least from my impression, likely to happen, if Gavin Newsom is the nominee, I and, and the Republicans have a ten vote, fifteen vote majority in the House, I think it's very likely he runs, and it's very likely he he um, wins quite handily. 
um, the presidential race in 2024. I hope so. so. Well, yeah. uh, what John Ralston said, and he was just repeating what other people have told him, uh -huh. he says, listen, Democrats, let the Republicans take the House at 10 I, to 15 uh, seats. He goes, watch what happens over two years. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You, you, if, they have a, if they have a majority that is so small they can't do anything, and it's so extreme that all they're doing is making fools of themselves, Biden has gotten so much done in this first term that having that fight is not a bad, it's not a bad place to be. It's not going to feel good, but it's actually a, a great place politically. I, I think Ralston's right there. I, I agree with him. Yeah. Well, that's all. Well, what's the best case scenario? We would we we hold the house and we have like five seats. Yeah, I mean, it, look, that's that that can happen. Races. I, I I'm not saying it will. I'm not saying it's likely, but but yes. I mean, these things happen. That's why we have campaigns, right? If it was all data, if Mike could tell you everything, I mean, we wouldn't have to have campaigns. I just look at the numbers and say, here's who's going to win this one. Who's going to win that? Cancel <laughs> the election. This is the way it's going to be. I mean, right? That's not how these things happen. Things, things happen, right? Fetterman, you know, has a stroke in the middle of the primary. I mean, my God, you can't account for that. Um, that race, by the way, might be tightening up a little bit. I'm not worried about it. But, but again, I don't think it's because Oz is catching fire. It's because the fundamentals of that race in that state are bringing that back into a normal range, a normal position. What we're witnessing right now is very normal. When we're witnessing the full spend of races, the bases in both parties are going to come home and they're going to tighten up. I think this belief that there was going to be this huge blue wave was way premature. And I was saying that. I've been telling y'all that. It's too early to be talking about the coalescing of a wave unless you can do something like sustain it for another month and a half. And I, I've never seen anything like that. And everyone's like saying, well, you know, you don't know the strength of women and women are angry. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And no one had seen the post-Dob surge. That's unprecedented. It's true. But it seems, at least for the moment, that Republicans have countered that quite effectively with the immigration fight. And it has, right. stopped, it has stopped that momentum. Women are not—Republican women are not leaving the Republican Party at the rate they were up until two weeks ago. Well, maybe something else will happen. Well, no, that, I, 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 I guarantee you something will happen. That's what campaigns are. That's, that's the job of the Democrats is to bring up other issues and force some of these things out. And that's what the Democrats – we're at a 50-50. It's a coin toss right now. It's very close. There will be some sort of an October surprise. There's going to be January 6th hearings. Is that today or tomorrow? It's not happening. They said they're waiting. No. Yeah, well, I, they'll, they'll, they'll do something before the elections. I mean, they better. My, my angina starts at Wisconsin and Nevada. I think Nevada's you – know, Nevada's. I've been saying Nevada's trouble. Nevada's trouble. Unless something happens, unless the, the, you know, the union, the unions yeah. that had helped that Reed had constructed that group, they didn't come out because of the COVID. Maybe they are now, but you don't hear anything. And it's kind of like, and these, and Latinos are not monolithic. Being from Los Angeles and living there, it's a different Latino, you yeah. know, yeah. Latinos are like pretty much with us with mm -hmm. me, you know, but not like in other places. It's different.
And it I is. don't really know why. The only thing I can say is that a lot of male Latinos tend to be more pro-Republican, but they also don't vote <laughs> very often. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I'm it's, hoping for. Well, they're like, they're, like, they're like their white male counterparts. They, and, right. And there's a whole lot of reasons why they behave that way. But I appreciate I will be having a book okay. coming out. I'm having a book coming out on this at the end of next year. So I will explain it all in that book. Yeah. We'll talk. Thank thank you so much. Enjoy that martini. And we'll talk to you again next week, if not before. Hopefully. Thanks. You bet. Craig, you're up. Thank you for your patience. Hey, Mike. No problem, man. Wait wait another hour just to talk to you, my friend. Well, I appreciate it. That's very kind of you. Hey, no question. Hey, I got a couple of questions regarding... Um, polling and when you're analyzing a poll, yeah. Um, but like, let's let's think just this one pretty thing. Um, Craig, I'm losing you. Is that me or is that you? Might be me. How about now, Mike? Is that any better? Yeah, better. Yeah, start over again. I missed you there. Um, so I was I've been looking a little further into these polling numbers that are coming out. Um, uh huh. And like if you look at these Arizona polls, um, Katie Hobbs is typically four to six points better than Carrie Lake amongst independents. Mm-hmm. And also Katie Hobbs, her um, unfavorable rating is also, you know, four to six points lower than Carrie Lake's. Uh-huh. And I know from listening to you that you always say that these elections are won in the margins. And I was just wondering how big of a deal that four to six point gap is on um, the independents. And Carrie Lake's, you know, unfavorable rating versus Carrie Hobbs or Katie Hobbs's unfavorable rating. Okay, eight question. You've asked about Hobbs's race before. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about Hobbs now. <laughs> Me too. They, they should have. They and you, you've been worried about it a little longer than I have. So God bless you. You've been. I think you've been saying, Mike, there's a problem. What's going on here? For a little bit longer than I have. To me, the fundamentals of, of where Arizona should be aren't set yet. They're not taking hold, and Lake is in a stronger position than she should be. Hobbs should be leading by four or five the way Kelly is, and she's not. And the strategy, I'm convinced, was to let Carrie Lake be Carrie Lake, and that will help drive her negatives up. So what I'm hearing you say is Lake is upside down on her positives. Is that is that right? Carrie Lake has more but, higher but, negatives than positives, so right? Yeah, yeah so which is not, which is not, Hobbs. yeah. Who's is worse? Carrie Lake's, and that's that. So how big? Like it's usually about four to six points, depending on the poll. And yeah, that's what I want to know. How important that number is? That to me is everything. That to me is everything. And again, this goes back to me as a my theory is negative partisanship. It's very rare that the candidate who is viewed the most negatively, especially by a measurable margin, like four to six points, wins the race. If you look at all of the polling data that's coming out on this race, if you're looking at Marist or the Suffolk poll, uh, Fabrizio, Trafalgar even, Emerson, all of these, they're showing a a pretty tight range. Again, the average has Lake at, at a plus one position. Hobbs is up one in some of these. Lake is up three or four in some of these things. Emerson had it at a dead heat in in early September. Okay, now the the, the voter screens, uh, the sample sizes range from 500 to 1,076. Okay, and so the tighter the screen, 
the better Hobbs is doing, the more the likely voters. I think it's going to be a higher turnout. So I, I look, I think this is probably a true toss up. Like this is probably a 50 50 race. And in that instance, the negatives matter. Hobbs' people, I'm sure, were letting Lake be Lake and letting her negatives go. And the more uh, free airtime she was getting, that 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 higher negative was cementing, and that's what they were that's what they were counting on. Okay, does that make sense? Yes, makes all sense. Yeah, and I'm not saying it's the, the a great strategy, but it might have been the best strategy that they've got. Right, Katie Hobbs is is an incumbent politician. I don't think she's got the charisma Carrie Lake does, but Carrie Lake cuts both ways. She scares the living shit out of a lot of people. But she's me, also me being one of them. Yeah, she she's also and, and and I think this could be the most important race in the country, by the way. Because not because of this race, but because of 2024. Okay? Because Carrie Lake is going to throw down with the Republican regardless of in this race. And you guys are going to have to really be prepared for her saying that the race was stolen if she loses by anything closer than three or four percentage points, which is highly, highly, highly likely. So Arizona, the chances of Arizona being a mess on election night for the next month are very, very high because Carrie Lake is just batshit crazy. But I would say I, I'm a bigger believer in Arizona and the trend line in Arizona because you've got a rock-solid Hispanic vote. The Hispanic vote's going to go 75% for the Democrat, 25% for the Republican. That's bigger than any other state except for California. California and Arizona are both the same that way. You have a high number of college-educated white emigres from other states coming into places like Scottsdale where there is you know, high tech sectors, there is fin- a financial industry, there is a white-collar workforce. It's not a huge blue-collar manufacturing base like the Minnesota woman that we were talking about uh, just a couple of callers prior. And you've got you've got this 65 plus vote, which is not normally getting the margins for the Republicans uh, that you see in places like Florida. It's a tighter margin that I that incidentally is where I think the race is really going to be decided is how these older voters vote. If they do break more Republican, then I think it could be a long night and Kerry Lake could pull this thing out if it's if it's a normal Arizona range. Um, then I think you've got a, a good a good shot there, um, a really good shot. Um, I, I would I I would like to see this in the Mark Kelly range. You know, I'd like to see her in a plus five. She's not getting there. Um, she Hobbs seems to be sitting. Um, you, you know, nobody's Lake has hit fifty a couple a couple of times in these polls going back to, to September. Um, and she's, she's pushing the upward envelope of that slightly more, ever so slightly more. So like, this is gonna be a close race. It's going to be a close race, but all other things considered, I'm looking at who's got the highest negatives. As long as that's Lake, my money is on Hobbs to win it by a very narrow margin. So the other number that sticks out on these polls to me, Mike, is Katie Hobbs in nearly every poll that I've seen, outperforms um, Carrie Lake by 3 to 4% amongst independents. Uh-huh. And when you live in Arizona, I think, what, 38% of our voters are registered independents? Yeah. Isn't that a big deal? Yes, it's a very big deal. Uh, that's, that's largely where the race will be decided. 
Um, again, what concerns me is Lake is getting a bigger share of that than you would, uh, than I would expect. But I mean, shit, that's been happening since 2016. There's <laughs> these weird things are happening with the electorate. You also have to remember the trend line in Arizona is has been moving bluer for like six cycles now. It's been moving into this position for for a while. I mean, you got two senators, two Democratic senators, for for goodness sake. Right. Well, what is that? Really? Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. But this is not one. Of, this is this is not you know anomalous. Like I said, it's not like this weird peculiarity. Arizona has been moving in this direction since at least the Arpaio times, and that was you know twelve years ago. For so yes, yes. Keep you're you're looking at the right indicators. Look at the pendant break. You want that higher, of course, and look at the the negative whose negatives are higher and watch as we get closer is that independent break will start moving and measuring and catching up to the negatives. They're almost there right now anyway, which is why it's so close. If Kerry Lake starts getting higher negatives, you'll see that independent number move to start matching it. And that's what you want. That's what Hobbs needs to get into contention here. Well, I hope she does it, Mike. I think you should reach out and help her campaign. <laughs> I, don't really I appreciate that. <laughs> Yeah, keep the faith. Keep the faith there, buddy. We need you there. We need your vote. And uh, and thanks for, for always asking great questions. I appreciate it. Hey, Mike, thank you. And uh, great show again. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Austin, back up on the stage. Go ahead and unmute. Hello again. Hello, hello. Uh, so I have a macro observation okay. um, in regards to Nevada. Um, in the past several um, elections, I tend to think of Nevada somewhat like Florida in that the margins are always very close. And, but in the case of Florida, the Republicans seem always to win. But the uh-huh. opposite is true in Nevada. You know, whether the margin's really tight, you know, they win by a few thousand votes or 30 or 40,000 votes, the Democrats tend to win it. So in 2020, Biden virtually won Nevada by virtually the same margin as Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. with, you know, nationally uh, worst numbers with the Spag voters. So looking at the polling did with the New York Times, you know, Biden was consistently in the 50s, to my recollection, um, heading into 2020 in the general election. And with the New York Times, where they did the, the poll of Hispanics, you know, it's probably the same position or slightly better. So on a macro level, I would think Nevada should be okay. I might be wrong about that on the micro level. I think that's kind of a good way to look at it. There's two things that I would add to that. And the first is the Hispanic voter in um, in Nevada is really largely Clark County. It's, it's overwhelmingly, not entirely, but overwhelmingly a function of kind of the culinary union. That doesn't mean that there aren't middle-class Hispanics. There are a ton. A lot of them left California for cheaper real estate and live uh, in, in, in industries um, outside of the gaming industry. But the real powerhouse, the machinery that Harry Reid built was based off of the culinary union, which is overwhelmingly Hispanic. It's the essential workforce that really makes up the strip there, the, 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 the gaming industry. These are the people that are not only cleaning the rooms, but serving the food, providing security. I mean, you name it, top to bottom, it's an overwhelmingly Latino workforce. That union when it turns out and turns out in big numbers 
has the effect of tipping the scales towards the Democrats. And they're very good at it. They've gotten extremely good at it. The challenge is, if you look at some of the polling with Hispanics, in, in, is that vote is trending pretty darn Republican. One of these groups, one of these Democratic groups that was actually saying, oh, there's no problem, there's no problem, and they did some polling work on it, showed that 40%, Trump had a 40% approval rating amongst Hispanics. Donald Trump did. Like, that's a red flag. It's something you got to pay attention to. And again, even if you're losing 60-40, as long as you're dramatically increasing turnout, you're, you're in a good spot. You're winning that vote. The problem is, are you still winning suburban white Republican women, right? The other swingable vote by enough of a margin to offset that. That is the problem the Democrats have. They keep going, well, you know, so if we go from, you know, 65 percent of Latinos to 62 or 61 percent, that's not a big deal. We're still winning it, you know, overwhelmingly. Yeah, but that 3 percent is coming from somewhere. That 3% is moving to the Republicans, and if you're not moving independents or Republican women or some other constituency into your column, you're getting your ass kicked. And that's what the issue is. It's not that Republicans are not going to win a majority of Hispanics in my lifetime. I'm not saying that. Look, I've been watching the Hispanic vote for 30 years. I know it pretty damn well. I'm not predicting it's going to go Republican in my lifetime, but it doesn't need to. And that's what that's what these guys don't get. So, look, I think I, I'm, I'm very worried about Nevada. I have been saying that since early on. Cortez Masto's numbers are not nearly as strong as they should be amongst Hispanics. It's a squirrely. There's that word again. It's a squirrely group for the Democrats. It's usually only there when the machine is greased up and activated. But I like the way you pointed out that Biden wins it by essentially the same numbers as Hillary Clinton did. That's a good sign. That's a sign to pay attention of. He won it by the same numbers between two widely disparate turnout elections and the percentages came in the same. Listen to what Austin's saying. That's a really, really, really important point that leads us to believe that the Democratic base is largely intact, that those numbers are holding up. The electorate moved considerably. The, the, the construct of the electorate moved between 2016 and 2020. And if Biden is getting the same percentage as Hillary was, then that's a very good sign. That's a sign of resiliency. So we're just going to have to wait and see. I, I wish that Nevada was in a stronger position. I wish that I was hearing more about what Democrats were doing. I think that there's a very good chance that on election night, there's going to be a, you know, a, a complete, you know, 49 to 50 split going into Nevada. And we're going to be looking at that race and saying, what what's going to happen here? Because whoever controls Nevada is going to control the, the United States Senate. I think that's a very real possibility. And I just don't have the confidence uh, that the Democrats are doing as much as they ought to be doing. We're just going to have to wait and see. I, I do think that... Um, Either one of them can win this race. I just, you know, I, I just, I, I, I literally change hour to hour because it's so evenly matched. We're just going to have to wait and see. But thank you for that observation, Austin. It's a really great question. Yes. Um, one quick point. Um, just look at the polling data back to 2018. Um, it looks to me that the polling data is virtually the same in terms of how many times Dean Heller is up 
um, versus Jackie Rosen and mm-hmm. what we're seeing today. It seems like um, Republicans get overestimated in the polls by a little bit, and the, uh-huh. that seems to be the um, trend line. That could be happening again uh, this time, or maybe the polls are right in Nevada. No, I think that's good evidence, and that's I look. That's I like to look at historical trend lines because they tell us something, and that with the the data that you are pulling out, that evidence is very good data. That's exactly way the way to be looking at the race. Um, I, I think if you match the two of those, you say okay, Heller was in this position, Cortez Masto was in this position, Hillary Clinton was in this position, Joe Biden was in this position. We're probably better than we think we're at, and it just feels a little bit awkward and it feels a little bit funny. Set that aside and let's look at what is changing and what is moving is the subset of Hispanic voters that's got to cause you a little bit of concern. Meaning, you're, I think you're right. The trend line matters. It's probably more likely to turn out like that than not. But when you look at some of the, if when you lift up the hood and you look at that, what that clanking sound is under there, you're like, huh, that's a serious problem. And we've got to rectify that. We've got to fix it because if we don't, this seat comes into contention in a way that we, that is not going to break good for us. And if they solve that, if they fix that, if they start getting the normal Hispanic break and the turnout machine back in operation, then yeah, the trend line will probably hold true. But again, right now, if you look, and I, I could be wrong, take a look at, at where, where Heller was at. Take a look at where Hillary was at with Hispanics. My guess is she was probably sitting in a stronger position than Cortez Masto is in most of the public polling, if only by four or five percentage points. And you may say, well, that's only four or five percent of the Hispanic vote. Yet this race is a coin toss. That's what's going to determine the outcome of it. That's how close it is. Fair enough? Yes. Um, I would need Austin. to dive back into the cross tab to see the Hispanic numbers. But uh, I guess in terms of figuring maybe where this race is going to tip, I think we'll probably have to wait until John Ralston does his early vote data um, yeah. analysis. Yep. Yeah, which is not far away, by the way. I mean, Ralston, if you want to know what's going to happen with Nevada, and you all should be paying attention if you're this you know, geeked out about it, Ralston, is, he, he knows Nevada better than anybody. Um, you know, his stuff is extremely solid. And like I said, Nevada, Nevada on election night is going to be what Arizona was for me on 2020. That's my backstop. I knew in 2020, and I told my, my crew, I told my data team, if it goes down to Nevada, if Nevada is going to determine the next president of the United States, I feel very good about where we're at because it's going to be tight. It's going to be close, but we're going to win that state with everything that we've put into this. We're going to move enough Republican voters to put that state into play uh, for Biden, and that's exactly what happened. I think you should look at Nevada. All of you should look at Nevada the exact same way. Everybody's going to be up pretty late. By the way, by the way, you know, Nevada, you don't know Nevada that night, right? It takes a while to get all those votes in. That's the, the vote The vote total spread for Biden. It was much closer on election night. Am I getting that right, Austin? Yeah, it was... Um... The early ballots came in first, and he was up by about five, with about seventy-five percent of the vote. And and then I think the election day vote was reported second. Republicans, it, yeah, yeah, it tied into less than a percentage point. And then when they counted the rest of the mail-in ballots over the next several days, he climbed to about a two and a half point win. Yeah, which is about the same as Clinton sixteen. Yep, there you go. 
There you go. And that, that, that dynamic, remember, that dynamic is going to happen again. And that's when the Republicans start throwing out their big lie bullshit, right? Because they're like, what's happened? And again, this is completely different than my 30 years of experience. I spent many, many, many millions of dollars training Republicans to vote by mail over 30 years. Donald Trump comes in, totally flips the table over and is like, oh, no, this is where the fraud happens. And Republicans start showing up on Election Day instead of voting by mail. Meanwhile, Democrats start voting by mail because of COVID. So Democrats, for the first time ever, at least in my professional lifetime and career, start having a significant advantage in the mail-in vote. And so when Austin says that, yeah, the final ballots do come in, by mail, it's going to benefit the Democrats. The same dynamic is going to hold. So it takes a few days. And that's why they sent out some of their goons. I think Matt Schlapp went out and, and Rick Grinnell went out to Nevada because they were trying to stop the count. Remember, before it was stop the steal, it was stop the count. They're trying to get Arizona and Nevada and Pennsylvania to stop counting ballots. <laughs> oh, fucking ridiculous. That's unbelievable. But it's frightening to remember what was going on there. But that, they're going to do the same shit again, especially in Arizona, especially in Nevada. Probably not as much in Pennsylvania because I don't think the races will be that close. But they're going to try that shit again. Uh, I just found the cross tab for the New York Times poll for the 2018 race in Nevada. Uh-huh. And... Um, the Democrat um, had 52% in the poll and Dean Heller was leading 47-45. There you go. Two points. Other direction though, right? I think she won by about four in 2018, actually. Yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, certainly Dean Heller's overestimated um, in the New York Times poll at least. Yeah. There you go. Good data. Thanks for that. Appreciate that. Guys, we've got a bunch of more questions. I'm going to go ahead and answer them all. We've got a good group here still that um, love to see the, this crew. If you get a chance um, and see that invite button down there, hit invite. Let people know that we're on here. Let people know that we're having this discussion. It takes just a couple quick seconds. means a lot. helps build our audience up and gets us even more questions. My voice seems to be doing okay right now. I might lose the battery. But we're going to go ahead and uh, to Annika right now to ask a question. Regular caller. Let's see if we can provide some insight. Go ahead and unmute that button. Hey, uh, Mike. I uh, got yes. a question. So I was sure. reading uh, Sarah Long Longwell's uh, focus group. He, she was saying that a lot of people uh, was voting, can't, cannot vote for uh, Ron Johnson. Can you hear me? Hey, Mike. Hello. Okay, can you hear me now? Yeah. Can you hear me? You now. Yeah. Okay, sorry about that. I think it was probably me. Starting to have these technical okay. difficulties about an hour. She was talking about the focus group. People cannot vote for um, Ron Johnson. They say like, you know, so I was curious, like, so do do focus group helps to understand the voters or is this too small? Of a you stuff? know, I, I look, I think Sarah's great. I think she does great work. I, I don't believe I think that focus groups are an outdated, really outdated tool for discerning voter opinion. I think there are far, far better ways to do it, especially because we've got such a wide digital reach now. 
um, normally when you do focus groups, what you're looking for is a deeper explanation of answers. I, I, I just, I don't believe that that's the right way to get the information that you're looking for. And I don't mean to be disparaging of Sarah. I think she's a fellow comrade in arms. I just think, I think focus groups are a relic of the past and I think they're becoming less and less relevant all the time. I just, I, I'm not a believer in them. We use them sometimes, but to discern the type of information that, that, that she's getting, there's, there's better, cheaper, more effective ways to do it. That's just, that's just my opinion. I respect hers. I just, I'm just not a big believer in focus groups. Okay. Then another one I was uh, listening to, Axel Rod and uh, Mike Murphy's uh, uh -huh. podcast. They were talking about, you know, they were talking about their Georgia race. Uh, I guess Mike Murphy was saying, like, he remembers when uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was running for the governor. Uh -huh. And everybody was saying, like, oh, he's done, blah, blah, blah. Then as a result, people still vote for him. So I, I forget who said that. You know, it might be kind of like, worn out. like, yeah, he's real smart. But you know what? People just. Celebrity, celebrity, celebrity tends to matter. I mean, not always. Okay. 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 Can you hear me? Yes, yeah. Celebrity, hear celebrity does matter. I mean, Donald Trump got elected. It's not the brightest, you know, bulb. Jesse Ventura got elected. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger got elected, but you know, um, what's, what's her name? Jenner. What's her name? California recall. I think Jenner, Jenner right? Yeah. Formerly yeah. Bruce Jenner. Uh, anyway, yeah, you know, not, not every celebrity is taken seriously. And, and, and it, it seems at the moment that Herschel Walker, who I think is par particularly, not smart, let me be politic, is, is not, um, is being taken far more seriously than he otherwise would be. One is because football is like religion in, in those parts. But the other is we're just in such a hyper-partisan environment that once he became the nominee, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're breathing, right? People, you know, people are going to vote for their partisan simply because and, and these, these movements of voters that I'm talking about, the reason why I get so nerdy and in the weeds, you know, and Hispanics in the union and, you know, recently migrated and 18 to 25-year-old women and suburban college-educated Republican women is because th that's the way that these races are won on the margins. You have to find these very small slivers and then move them. They're not huge Republican versus Democratic shifts. They're very small marginal movements that determine the outcomes of races. And I think that Murphy, who I'm a big fan of, he's a good friend. We've done a lot of races together. Um, and he did Schwarzenegger's you know, recall back in the famous one. If anybody knows the, the power of celebrity in politics, it's Murphy. And, and I, I think that's as good an explanation as any for what's happening with Herschel Walker. So, um, Amy, we're going to go ahead and bring you up on stage. My apologies. You were supposed to be the first caller, and you got kicked out. I take complete responsibility for that. Uh, I appreciate your patience in coming back. Um, how, can I, how can I be of service? Uh, thank you. Actually, my first question got answered in some of the other uh, questioners. Oh, good, so, good. But I have a second question. Okay. So um, you, had, you said Carrie Lake, uh, the uh, governor 
race in Arizona you think is maybe one of the most important for 2024, um, which I agree with you on. The other race there in the state that has me very worried actually is the Secretary of State between Adrian Fontes and Mark Fincham. Mm-hmm. Um, the controls the voting yeah. um, mechanism yeah. in that yeah. state. And it's very hard to find data on you know, where that goes. But I, I did read something where it looks like Fontes is very much down from Fincham and Fincham is just as wackadoo crazy as Kerry Lake. So just any, any thoughts that you have on that race? I think it's really hard to buy the idea that there are really wide discrepancies down ticket, especially for an extremist candidate when the top of the ticket is showing the exact opposite propensity. And by that, what I mean is Masters is is kind of just as nutty as Fincham. And to, to why Fincham why Fincham would be in a plus five position down ticket, and Masters would be at a negative five position at the top of the ticket, makes absolutely no sense. I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm saying there's no rationale for that. Like, it, it just doesn't make sense. Like, I don't like the crazy guy for Senate, but I like the crazy guy for Secretary of State. Like, I mean, I, I don't get it. It just doesn't make sense. And why would you have Masters at a negative five, Kerry Lake dead even, and then Fincham plus five? Like, that doesn't make any there, there's, there's no there's no There's no voter psychology that explains that. The much more likely explanation is the polling, polling down ticket is notoriously difficult, notoriously difficult. And so my strong sense is where Fincham is probably at is wherever baseline GOP vote is at, which in, in Arizona is very, very, very competitive. So that's probably also a very competitive race. I have no doubt that that is probably the, a, a likely scenario. But I, I don't buy the idea that he's way ahead when... when um, yeah, the crazies up top are, are aren't. It just it just it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess I guess it it could be happening, but I I I can't discern a rationale to explain why that would be the case. Okay. Yeah. That I. It's just I basically just no data. Right. Not good data. Yeah, and and, and we're and we're not gonna have it for a Secretary of State's race. It's 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 notoriously difficult to get anything other than name ID in a down ticket race. Anything below governor and US senator, it's I don't want to say it's meaningless, but it's 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 the data is so unreliable for all of those down ticket seats, it's it's almost meaningless. It really just follows strict partisan cues. He's basically going to get whatever the GOP baseline registration is, and then they'll fight for independence. And, and that's basically follows partisan cues too. There's the thing about independence, by the way, Real, this is, this is helpful. Independent voters are not truly independent. They disaffiliate with both parties, but they have the same exact demographic leanings that their partisan brothers and sisters have. And they vote the same way. So they may be like, well, I'm, I'm just don't like joining a political party or the parties don't make any sense. But, you know, an older white male who's an independent has an 85% propensity to vote for the Republican Party. And an 18 to 25-year-old female Latina 
in Phoenix is going to have an 85% propensity to vote for the Democratic Party. So they're not truly independent. I mean, I guess they are in that they're, they're not affiliated with a party, but we can tell by basic demographics with a very high degree of certainty how they're going to vote. They're a, little, they're a little bit less partisan anchored, but, but not that much. So again, t- polling down, down ticket, it's just notoriously difficult. Okay. All right? That's yeah, I okay. hope it was helpful. That you helps. bet. Andrew, you're back up. Hey, I'm back. Yep. All right. So, um, good news. There's no squirrels in Australia, so if you're um, well, <laughs> if you want to relocate, <laughs> you can get out of bed. Um, uh, the one was quite interesting. Um, it's probably two questions. Um, twenty, twenty, and I think the there's a thing about the debate where Trump wanted to fix the candidate. You know, all those. I'm having a little. I'm having a little trouble hearing you. Sorry, yes. is that better? Okay. Um, so the Latino vote, do you think it's coming will come back to Democrats because in 2020 um, the, uh, they were in that sort of service club where they couldn't work from home. Right? They couldn't I, I'm losing you. Yeah. I'm losing you. Yeah. You're talking about the Latino vote. Is it coming back? Is that, the, is that essentially the question? Is it coming back because um, they now um, the, the Democrats aren't the party of lockdown anymore? Where they, yeah, you know, they, they couldn't. Work I mean, yeah, them. I think that there's, I think there's, there's, there, that's certainly a very viable explanation, but I think it's also very dismissive of the Democrats to just write that off. There's plenty of social data, and there's a plenty of trend line to suggest that a rightward shift was going to happen and is happening. Um, so, so I'm sure that played into it, but I think it's just remarkably dismissive of Democrats to to do that and to say that. I do believe I do yep. believe there's a good chance that the Hispanic vote shifts back to the Democratic Party, but but here's why: it will shift back because young Hispanic U.S.-born women will react to the Dobbs decision the way that the yep. non-Hispanic white women are, and that could pull it mm-hmm. back. Is that a long-term sustainable hold? No, it's not at all. It's, you know, it's a victory you take in this election cycle, but that doesn't dismiss the long-term dynamic, the long-term trends and the long-term shift away. And I'm much, much more of a believer that that is what's going on than anything else. So if if the Democrats are saved from a rightward shift, and most of the polling shows that it's still happening, but if the Democrats are saved from it, it will be because of Dobbs and um, Hispanic women, especially young Hispanic women. And um, what about, what's your take on Trump not being on the top of the ticket? Because a lot of these Trump voters, white, um, blue-collar people, low propensity, low propensity voters, yep. right, were, were driven to the polls by, by, by Trump, by, you know, the orange juice, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and that's exactly right. Without, so, uh, how is it? How is that being forecasted in 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 in, in any sort of modelling or prediction about what's going to happen? Well, it depends on the poll, right? But yes, I mean, Andrew's bringing up a very important point, and that point is that when Donald Trump's name is literally on the ballot, there is a higher turnout amongst non-college educated, especially rural white voters. That, that overperformed the voter model and shocked a lot of pollsters in a lot of regions, both in 2016 and in 2020. That same voter did not show up to the same degree in 2018, which significantly sure. favored the Democrats, 
nor did it show up in the special elections in Georgia just a month after the 2020 election cycle. So without, even when Trump was rallying and saying, my name is on the ballot and our beliefs and our country's on the ballot and these communists are going to run the country into the ground and if you don't show up, we're all going to go to hell. Like none of that worked. They only vote for him. And it's, it's enough it's enough that it, it has affected the outcomes of races, but it disappears if his name is not on the ballot. So that has created a little bit of a challenge for pollsters because they are still seeing an extremely energized Republican electorate. The way they discern that is by asking the question, how likely are you to vote? And to be honest with you, it's a crude instrument, but it's been pretty reliable. They rely on the interviewee to literally tell them, yeah, I'm going to show up. Respondents, by the way, you know, they're not, it's not that you're looking for exact numbers of who's going to show up, but if, if 30 to 40% say they're going to show up compared to 70 to 80%, you know that your intensity is changing. There's something on the ground that's affecting that intensity. And Republican intensity is pretty high right now. It's, it's Democrats is pretty high, too. It's higher with the Republicans than it is with Democrats, but both are high enough to suggest very strongly that we're going to have record high turnout. So I, I what was I, the I, um, what was the 2018? What, was, what, what were the 2018 propensity for Republicans? Was it was it pretty flat? What was the turnout rate? Now, what was the propensity in the, in the 2018 polling, the midterm polling for Republicans? Was it pretty flat? Uh, I, I'm not too, It depends on the poll, right? And all of these guys use different screens. When we say propensity, we mean the likelihood of voting. And usually what we use is a likely voter is what we call a three of four voter, which means you voted in three of the last four elections. That's a different screen than a lower propensity voter, which is usually a two of four voter which means you voted two in the last four elections. That means you usually only vote yep. in presidential elections and not the midterms. If you're voting in less than yep. two of four, we really don't, we don't, really don't count you into the model much because you're so unreliable, we so don't know if you're ever going to show up again. So were the, were the Republicans energized as much in 2018? Like, is anyone looking at that sort of comparison in, in midterms? I don't know if anybody is, but if the two places I would look would be Elliot, um, the pollster for The Economist, who has, who has been yep. raising a lot of the, the um, alarm bells about a, a, a pro-democratic bias, especially in red or battleground states. Uh, you might want to check out what he has to say. And Nate Cohn, you know, at The New York Times, usually, you know, uh, they, they've come under, become under such heavy scrutiny because their polling has been so inaccurate i mean i guess is one way to look at it they would say it's probability and they're, they're right i mean you're not a pollster we look at pollsters and like we want we want the pollster that's going to pick it exactly right that's really not what yeah, yeah it's not only impossible it's really not what the instrument is used for but that's just kind of the, the society yeah. we're in now right like tell me what it's going to be and it's like that's that's not what this is supposed to do right it's, you're looking for different movement with different demographic groups but 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 I would look there. I would I would look to see what they're doing. Because, but Elliot was the guy who really really started raising this alarm bell a couple of weeks ago, saying there's something wrong with the polling that is biased towards the Democrats, and it's the same problem that we had in 2020. It's the same reason why Biden was in a plus four, plus five, plus six in Wisconsin, and it ended up losing by one percent. 
it's the reason why Arizona was plus two, plus three Biden, and he ends up, you know, winning by a handful of votes. It's the same reason that Pennsylvania was uh, much tighter. I mean, there were polls. There were polls that were showing Biden plus twelve and plus eight in Pennsylvania, and he won by you know a couple points. The, the, yeah, but no one believes this. So don't worry. Right, right, right. But that that I I would look there. I, I he's the one who's really been raising the alarm bells. Well, I think, um, and sorry, last point, I don't take going too long, but um, I think that might be the surprise. Maybe that the energized level might be the miss with that, with Trump not on the ticket. That could something. Could it be could surprise. be women could just show up in huge, huge numbers. I mean, it could be sustainable. And maybe Republican women, you know, say to hell with immigration. This is a real threat. I mean, yeah, there's a number of different variables. I think that that's a very, that's a very possible scenario. I mean, I can't say it's not. I, I, I just, we don't know, right? All we can go off of is what history tells us and make the best guess. And that's ultimately what a, a pollster is doing is, are you making the best guess based off of the, the best available data that we have? That's the science behind it. It doesn't mean that anybody, you know, can't make a guess and be right. But it's kind of like I said, it's like hitting on 16. Some people do it, some people don't. I got taken to task last week for saying, you don't hit 16. Some professional gamblers say you do. That, in a nutshell, is the decision a pollster has to make. Cheers, All right, Mark. buddy. Thank you so much. Good, good, good stuff, yeah, man. great, great question. Renee always asks the toughest question, and I know she does. She waits till I'm tired and I'm exhausted, and then she asks these really involved hypothetical questions that are really good but really hard to answer. How are you doing, Renee? I'm doing good. How I'm are doing you, good. What's on your mind? Um, actually, I don't have a hypothetical for you. I was kind of occupied earlier, so that's kind of my, my late appearance here. But I was listening to you talk about like demographics in Arizona and the change in demographics there with the migration, you know, from other states into high tech industries and you know those kinds of things. Um, and it it kind of gave me. North Carolina vibes in some respects, if you substitute our black population for Hispanic population, if that makes sense. It makes sense. perfect sense, but you can't do that. Oh, yeah, I know. no, I know. yeah, I know. yeah, that's, I mean, I'm glad you brought this up and I know you're not saying that, but that, that is the mistake that Democrats make. And that's, oh, no. that is the, the mistake that Democrats make. Like when I look at North Carolina on paper, we've talked about this, that's a blue state. Yeah, I'm getting ready to throw you a new variable. Oh, okay, you're not done. Of course, it's always a question. No, you always ask like three three right. triple bank shots in your questions. Oh. <laughs> okay, the big our fastest growing demographic uh -huh. is Correct. Hispanic. This year we have 83,000 mm -hmm. newly eligible Hispanic right. voters. There is zero polling for mm -hmm. Hispanics in North Carolina. None. Yeah, and you probably won't for a couple of years, too. There have been a couple of stories I've seen written uh, basically saying that, exactly what you're articulating, because that 83,000 is going to be the margin of error. Now, if you get if you get an Arizona, California-style Latino break and 75% of that goes towards the Democrat, well, now you're playing, you know, you're cooking with gas, right? This is a block that's going to actually start to affect the outcomes of races. And I will say this, that's quite likely. That's what we're seeing in Georgia. That's what we're seeing in Pennsylvania. And one of the reasons is it's a relatively recently migrated community. These are, this is a workforce 
Uh, and, and I think it's mainly Mexican, right? And Central American? Yeah. Yes. That's so correct. so that tells me that these are folks in the construction trade. These are the service industry. These are blue-collar folks, probably speak Spanish themselves predominantly and have kids that are bilingual. There's a very good chance that that constituency is 75% Democrat. Very good likelihood. Why? Mexican-American and two recently migrated. That's all I need to know. That's all Mike Madrid needs to know. And I'll tell you what, that's a 75% likelihood that's voting Democrat. And I don't know if the Democratic Party is doing anything to turn out that vote, but it should be because that is the kind of sleeper vote that is not viewed in the polls. And if you get turnout there, you're going to have an overperformance of Democrats on the voter rolls. You are going to see some surprise races get picked up. That will happen. That was what, that's the story of California. That's the story of Arizona. That's the story of the Southwest that is happening now in Wisconsin. It's happening in North Carolina. It's happening in Pennsylvania. It's happening in Georgia. And in fact, I will say this. When a race is as close as Georgia was for Biden, you know, anybody can take credit for it. But there's, you know, there, there was 80,000 Hispanic voters. I mean, Biden won by 12,000 votes, right? Yeah. There are more Latino voters in Wisconsin than there are African-Americans. That's crazy. Like, that's nuts. Yeah, and right. And so, 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 you know, when I, when I was a younger man, it was like, oh, this is, you know, in this part of California, this is happening, and now Colorado, and now Nevada, and now Arizona, and now New Mexico. It's always been California and Texas was the base. It's literally everywhere now. There is not a state that does not have a discernible vote. You're hitting those numbers in North Carolina where someone needs to pay attention because that will literally change the statewide calculus of who wins if it's organized and neither party is polling it. You're exactly right. Now, it's not going to turn out on its own. Yeah, that's what I was getting ready to tell you is that there have been a ton of um, targeted registration efforts in the Latino community itself Uh here. And that's been going on for about a year. Um, So it's not like last minute kind of push stuff that has been going on sustained over the last. Well, you may not. My question for you is, do we have enough given that 75, 25 split? Mm -hmm. Do we have enough to make up for the idiotic college educated (laughs) white people who vote like non college educated white people? Because that's what happens here every time. Yeah, that's what that's what perplexes me about North Carolina. That's exactly right. It's 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 college educated whites vote vote like non college educated whites in North Carolina. Um, I, 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 the short answer is I don't know because I I I don't know right. But what I will say is, um, it gets a lot easier. <laughs> I mean, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but it definitely narrows that margin. And again, what we're focused on here is the margins. If you're really getting 75% of that vote, which is doable, it is doable, I mean, you don't need that many more. When you're talking 75,000 votes, you don't need that much more of a crossover. Yeah, well, we've got, I think, um, I think it's 1.18 million eligible Latino voters yep. here now. I mean, that's, that's, your, that's, your, that's your sleeper right there. If, that, if those investments can be made you will turn North Carolina blue by the next presidential race. 
which and that if you I mean if you if you if you do anything and you make that commitment you could save the country because that changes the 270 map. That changed, like that well, North Carolina was the state that I was really hopeful for because it had gone blue before with Obama and it's an early voting state and I was pouring millions of dollars in there on a hope and a prayer no against my better judgment but the reason that I went in there was because if we were able to move the needle there you you cut them off at the pass. If you if if the Demo, if the Democrats win North Carolina, the roadmap to 270 gets very fucking narrow. Excuse my French, but it's like a goat path up the side of a granite cliff. It's tough. Yeah, it's really tough. And if you squeeze Arizona out, there's almost no way to get there. There's almost no way to get there. And so. I had two states that were my offensive strategies, North Carolina and Florida. I knew I wasn't going to win Florida, but even with a 10 or 15% chance, you completely cut them off. A Republican cannot win the 270 map if the Democrat wins Florida. It's over. The race is done. Okay? North Carolina severely restricts that number. And in fact, if a, if a Republican doesn't win uh, uh, Florida, it's like a two percent chance they can win um, the 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 rest of the roadmap to two seventy. If they lose Pennsylvania, it's like a five percent chance. Those two states are absolutely critical for the Republicans. It's 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 very difficult for the Democrats to do it without it, but not not as tough. There are still there are more ways to win for the for the Democrat than there is for the Republican. I'm sorry, I'm getting way off the topic here, but. No, yeah. you're good. I, I, you actually kind of like steered my mind. Like, I, I've kind of divided my efforts this this cycle. I've kind of got like two thirds of my attention goes into my own state, but then a, another thirty percent I've been pouring into yeah. Florida. I've been making a ton of calls, a ton of postcards, a ton of text messages, and sending a lot of dollars down there because with the thought in mind that if Ron DeSantis cannot win his own state, he will never be the. That's nominee. a fair. That's fair. And, I get that. That's a good. GOP cannot win without Florida. So if he doesn't win his state or the Democrats make severe inroads in Florida, do you know what I'm saying? I don't think that that that's a must have. Yeah. Them. So if I'm dividing my attention, that's where it's gone. I like that. And I mean, the, the best way to look at it is this, is if you if you take uh, North Carolina off the table, um, it, it, it's like it's like taking a limb off. Of the Republican Party, it's a, it's really hard to get to 270. Possible, but really hard. If you take Florida off, then it's virtually uh, it's virtually impossible. It's 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 almost it's almost can't be done. If you take if you take Texas off, then you're cutting the head off the snake. There will be a civil war in the in the in the you know Republican Party. That's not going to happen. But just to put it in perspective, one of the things I have discovered that is a major problem here is our county chairs are MIA. They don't, like, they're completely disorganized. They do not communicate nothing. So if we're going to turn North Carolina blue again, we have to address that problem. Now, if you go from Greensboro East, you're in good shape. If you go uh, from the backside of Greensboro West, everything is discombobulated. It's just like they've abandoned the entire western part of the state and said, screw it. We're not getting it back anyway, so we're just going to let mm -hmm. it die. 
So I think that's one of the major things that we've got to address in this particular state is getting some organization back in the Western part. Because you've got, you know, you have uh, a, a nine-term incumbent here, like it, that has run unopposed three times. You know, so things like that are going to have to change if North Carolina is going to turn blue right. again. Right. I think I think that's exactly right. I, I think that, again, the increasing Latino vote, especially because it's a predominantly Mexican-American vote, if you can get the Democratic Party to invest significant resources to building infrastructure there, that is the fastest way you can move that trend line because um, it's harder to move a white suburban educated woman off the R party in that state than it is to move an existing uh, citizen voting age eligible Latino to support the Democratic Party. It's just it's just basic yeah, efficiency. Sure. And they're there. The fish are in the barrel. So so go get them. And that that you turn you turn North Carolina into a more competitive state. And like I said, the whole 270 map changes entirely. Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, I really got kind of fed up and just kind of went to my district office and put my face in their face this time because I'm like, dude, what what are you guys yeah. doing? Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, what in the world? Because you've abandoned this entire portion, our, our whole District 5. It goes from like Winston-Salem all the way to past Asheville to Tennessee border. Yeah. And nobody is communicating with anybody else. Like it, it's just, it baffles me the the complete abandonment of an entire part of the yeah. state. And in our mar our voting margins in our governor's race in the presidential they are so They're narrow, narrow that you are yeah playing. yeah the yes. way you yeah this is this is the one era again I saw this happen in California California was a very Republican state up until the early 1990s. Well, the mid-1990s, and what changed that was manufacturing new voters by registering them and getting to the polls. And most polling did not show that. And it shocked us as Republicans so much because our best pollsters couldn't figure out what was going on. And what it was was the Democratic Party finally figured it out, is we're going to have to literally find new votes. In the same way Kevin McCarthy talks about finding new votes— and Donald Trump found them to Austin's question or Andrew's question earlier, that non-college educated white rural voter, there are millions of those folks that do not vote. Donald Trump brought them to the polls. If the Republican Party can build the machinery to get them to the polls, they can move Arizona back into a red position. They can move Georgia especially back into a red position. A lot of this is finding new votes. And that's the future for the North Carolina is if you can get your party over the next two years, if you make that your mission and you get another 80, 90,000 people to the polls because you lead a Hispanic voter outreach program, that changes everything for the presidential race in 2024. True story. Yeah, well, I really appreciate you, you know, making yourself available for me to bounce stuff like that off of. Because, I mean, this is such a tough state to get, like, demographics and and reliable um you know voter information and who's doing what and and all that kind of stuff it's just baffling to me how we don't have more data available than yeah. we do uh, and frustrating i get it but keep but, keep at it it's a frustrating it's I a really frustrating business but this stuff does make a difference renee i appreciate your calls all the time very insightful i know that you live and breathe this stuff you'd make a hell of a good political consultant so thank you for thanks for reaching out i'm happy to help 
appreciate it. You bet. Thank you. Andrew, back up in the queue. Um, uh, who are these voters who vote for Warner? Andrew, I'm having a tough time hearing you. Yes. Okay. Um, who are these uh, who are going to vote for Warnock? Yeah, it's. I think it's African American males. Uh, I haven't looked at the tabs, but what I am seeing is a consolidation of the Republican base. There was a lot of people who were, um, you know, uh, they, 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 they weren't. This is white Republican males, right, who are like, I'm not really comfortable with Herschel Walker. But now that we're getting close to the election and the decision is real, they're like, I'm voting for the Republican. I don't care who the hell it is. And that's what's happening is, is, is Walker is consolidating his base. The real question, I think, who on who's going to win that race is going to come down to now African-American males. How many Herschel Walker is able to get? If he's able to get 15, 20 percent, tough for a Democrat to win in Georgia if he's not getting 85, 90 percent of of the African-American you know, vote. And if and if and if Walker is that deep into that demographic, it's 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 tough. It's tough. So and that's 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 where the play is going to be. Watch the vote break on African-Americans, generally African-American males specifically. So they um, so the, the, the African-American males will vote for Warnock, but they won't vote for Abrams. Is that what you that's saying? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. I, I look and I, I've said this before. I'll say it again. I think Abrams did herself no favors by contesting the election four years ago. I think if she had, if she had, whether it was stolen or not, I, I don't think it was. Go ahead and throw whatever shoes you want to at me. I don't think it was. Stuck, stuck, come stuck. Get under your, yeah. get under your desk. Get yeah, come. yeah. I, I don't think that it was. Um, I think that if she had graciously seeded it and built an operation forward, she would be in a commanding position right now. I think people, people, that's... I think Trump is dealing with that too. It's just you lose independence because people are like, this is why I'm not in these parties. I mean, if you're going to start saying the elections were stolen, then I, I don't want any part of it. That's what's happening. So there's, so there's going to be a, so be a lot of, lot of uh, ticket splitting, you think? Yeah, yeah. Not only there, I think Ohio, that's going to happen, right? It may happen in Arizona. This is These races are so close and the voters are becoming so discerning. They're literally, like I said, negative partisanship. They're voting against extremism. And so a voter, these discerning voters are going in and going, do I want Warnock or Kemp? Right? Or, you know, or, 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 or I'm not going to vote a straight ticket. I'm not going to do Abrams and Warnock. Who am I going to pick? Well, they're picking Warnock, which means they're going to go with Kemp. And, and, and in, Ohio, in Ohio, they're like, I'm with DeWine. And I'm, not, and I'm, and I'm with, with Ryan. Right? And, and, I, and I'm with um, Kelly. Yeah. And, and Lake in Arizona, right? Like, that, that's part of it. Like, they're making these calculations going, okay, I'm going to pick one crazy to balance out the other crazy. And, and, and I know this is a partisan, you know, audience here, but, um, and, and everyone thinks the Republicans are always more crazy, and they're probably right, but the average voter thinks that everyone in politics is crazy. Um, will, um, will, will Greg Abbott do, do this, do a debate in Spanish with, um, with Mr. O'Rourke? I don't know. I, what I will say is this, it's not going to make a difference. 
He, I, I mean, he ought to. I mean, I, only, only because no one's going to watch it or pay attention to it and he gets the pass. I, 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 that's not his problem. I, I just don't think that that's the problem. I, I, Beto's problem is not, I mean, he's got a problem with Hispanic voters, but even if he corrects for that, what the hell was he doing in deep red rural counties? It doesn't make sense. I think when they do the autopsy of that race, they're going to be like, hey, whoever this Mike Madrid guy was was saying this months ago, he was right. Never should have done that. Never should have done that. Doesn't make any damn sense. So you don't, you don't think language barrier makes it? No, 75% of Hispanics are English dominant or English exclusive. Okay. And the, 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 the English dominant Spanish speaker is amongst the most partisan that breaks for the Democrat. You're, you're not moving any votes there. That's not where the swing vote is. Yep. Interesting. That's pretty good. Oh, well. good All right, man. You bet. It, Thanks for the question. Peggy, hardest working campaign person in America. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> trying to stay focused and also being aware that America is going to go through a lot of things for the next yeah. years, 10 to 20 yeah. years, you know, and looking at the long game yep. as well. Okay. So I might understand that you said before in California that the, the thing that broke it from Republican to Democrat, what broke the started breaking the state up and the movement went because they were newly registered voters. Well, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up because I'm actually writing this chapter in the book right now. There's actually three things that happened in California. One was the rise of Latino voters. There's no question about that. The second was the end of the Cold War. And we had a massive base closure uh, on the West Coast, we didn't need as many bases. So the military industrial complex shut down. And what that meant was a lot of white, non-college educated, blue collar workers that worked in aerospace lost their jobs. And you know where they went? They went to Texas, they went to Arizona, they went to Colorado, they went to Nevada, and they turned all those states Republican. We, we were exporting Republicans. And the third thing that happened was the internet economy started and it blew up and and that created a whole different culture where people were basically libertarian they were very socially progressive but financially and fiscally very conservative and those three dynamics dramatically changed california politics and that's what's changing the country's politics now all those same dynamics that are changing the country's politics are everything that started in 1989 1990 in California. So California has gone through everything that what the country is just beginning to experience now. Wow. Oh, so if I can, and one more question. Yeah. Just because, you know, I'm yeah. so pulling for Beto. I mean, the numbers are yeah. the numbers, but um, I see what the campaign is doing. And I, I think what, what, they're, what they're trying to do is get as many new registered voters as they can. And I wanted your opinion on that. It's never, it's never, it's, it's never a good strategy statewide. Right. Because it's so hard, it's so expensive, it's so unreliable. I'm not saying it's a mm. bad thing to do. If you've got people that want to do it, right. then yeah, do it. But is it going to affect the outcome of the race? No, not in a state like Texas. No. You can manufacture those kind of races in a state like North Carolina, where, you know, Renee was telling us there's 75, there's 80,000. I mean, 
those are new voters. The, the eligible pool is huge. It's much bigger. And when the, when the, when the differential in the state uh, between w- winning and losing is in the tens of thousands, and you got two years to do it, makes perfect sense. If you're doing that in the last six months of a race, you're kind of wasting your time. I'm not saying do, I'm not saying don't do it where it exists. And if people only want to do that, then fine. It's better than nothing. But the real problem is the Hispanic shift that you're losing in the Rio Grande Valley, and you're not getting enough Hispanic, I'm sorry, white college-educated women in the suburbs. You're talking hundreds of thousands of votes shifting in that direction. That's where the campaign should be focused on. They're, they're folk, uh, t- they, they do, the outreach they're doing is just incredible. I was on a Zoom meeting, and they're doing all kinds of d- more volunteers for, for block walking and phone banking, and it's just incredible. Yeah. Well, so, keep, keep up okay. the fight. It's never, it's never a bad thing to do the right thing. I'm fighting for a few people. <laughs> yeah. But thank you. Your input is important. It keeps me focused. Thank okay, you. Okay, you bet. Guys, I'm gonna, I'm about to run out of battery here. I'm about to to die, so I'm gonna try to catch some more. But if I drop you, it's that means the show's gonna end <laughs> because we've been going on so long. I think we're uh, we're losing uh, not only audience but 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 battery power. So let's see what we we can we got. Okay, this is a really okay. quick one. <clears throat> Do you have any idea who it, who is behind this? FBA ADOS push that's going on because I have seen it everywhere and I know it's not black Democrats. I don't even know what that is. It's uh, the, I, I, man, I'll have, you know what? I'll just tag you in something so you can okay, look perfect. at it because it's some crazy stuff that's coming. It, it's coming from black individuals, but it's not black Democrats. And it's kind of this, could well, be Russian. If we don't get this, then you sit out of the election. Yeah, that sounds thing. like a Russian bot can. It sounds like an op, yeah. right? Yeah. That's exactly what it sounds like to me. However, I had my daughter had somebody approach her on campus about um, joining a group that was attached to ADOS. Yeah, I don't know what that is, but let me know. Okay. I'm interested, but I'm gonna I'm gonna keep grabbing some of the calls before I run out of battery. Absolutely. Okay, Go ahead, bye. Mike. Bye. Amy. Just, okay, sorry, I know your voice is running out, but we talk a lot about the demographic changes in, like, Arizona and Georgia, like, turning blue. But in 2016, uh, obviously, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania went uh, red, and they flipped in the 2020. But I have a feeling, over time, that those states are going to turn red eventually. Uh, just your thoughts. I, I disagree. Um, Pe- Pennsylvania oh. is getting going to get bluer. Ohio, I don't know if you said Ohio. Ohio will get redder. Wisconsin will probably get redder, but not Pennsylvania. What about co- uh, Michigan? Michigan will continue on a bluer trajectory. As more, oh, okay. it's all directly correlate to the amount of college-educated voters. Okay. Okay. Right. Thank- okay. That's all I you wanted bet. to know. No problem. Thank you. <laughs> Brenda. No comment. Yep. Um, Beto has run, he ran his Senate campaign the same mm-hmm. way that he's running the governor um, campaign right mm-hmm. now. So 
this is something he strongly believes, I oh. guess, that uh, the way he's doing the rural um, red counties, um, I don't know why he's following the same pattern he did before, uh, uh, but it is definitely him, not his, I, yeah. I think. Well, he, it, he lost. <laughs> so I don't know what to yeah, tell him. I mean, yeah, you're going to get the same results. It's not a good strategy. Um, but, you know, I, I think part of it is I want to be inclusive and I want to show that I, I, I want everybody in this campaign, and, and that's fine. That's good. But at the final analysis, you got to win. And you win by getting more votes than the yeah. other person, and there's not enough votes out there. It's just not a good idea. Yeah, yeah I know. All right. Brenda, thank okay. you so much thank for you. waiting in the queue. Guys, got to run. I'm almost out of battery. I'm definitely, definitely out of voice. Love having you guys. Thank you so much for joining the show. Be sure to share it when I post it. It means the world to me. We'll be back probably before next Wednesday, but definitely if I don't talk to you then, thanks for joining this episode of Mic Drop.